Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm very excited to be kicking off our Gunbuster coverage proper with you all today. Uh, we have a, a bunch of guests on the call, which I'm very excited about. Um, but before that, PMC, you're a little jet lag, but welcome back to Jersey. Yeah, it is It is good to be back. I had some, some fun adventures, I guess, representing the Northeast uh, at SGDQ, Summer Games on Quick 2023, which at the time of record has just wrapped up really uh, a few hours ago. Uh, my run was in the early early morning hours of Thursday, and uh, it went really well. I'm super, super happy with how it went. I also want to give a thank you uh, to the Gundam community, which really came through. Shout-outs in particular uh, to David uh, Wycarps, who came up with the idea of doing the file name choice for True Crime as Suleta which fits the license plate perfectly, seven characters. And from there, I was like, well, if that happens, I'll wear the, the Gundam basketball jersey. Uh, and so then, you know, people really showed up. And in combination between Gundam fans and the French Restream, which was trying to snipe the file name with the name of a French comedian, uh, it raised over $1,000, <laughs> which is, like, super good for a file name bid war for, you know, a, a run in the middle of the night, uh, late Wednesday, early Thursday. Uh, so that's just, you know, thank you so much. I know, and a lot of people retweeted it and pushed it and everything. Uh, obviously, you know, David, uh, I think, um, I want to say uh, Dawn did as well, uh, mm-hmm. Nostalgia Anime Podcast, and other people as well. You know, a bunch of people. I'm, I'm not going to be able to, unless I go, you know, search every retweet, I'm not going to be able to find it. But uh, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you to all the people who donated and supported for that. Uh, I hope someday to find a Gundam game that I think can get into a GDQ. We'll get there when we get there. Well, PMC is a great run. I almost caught it live. I was up, but groggy and had a baby in my arms. But I watched it later, and it was, it was a sick run. Great couch commentary. Very cozy with you and Fru. Yeah, everyone really came through on commentary. I mean, Casey Fru, of course, extremely veteran and experienced. Uh, musical Daredevil, also very good. And authentic New Yorker, Fretzel, uh, <laughs> you know, delivered. Maybe the throwaway line of the, of the, of the, mar- of the run when... Um, there's there's a, a a bug where you can cause motorcycles to ride around without any driver on them, and as a throwaway line, Fretzel just says, "Oh yeah, Elon's America." It's <laughs> <laughs> very good. All right, so we are not alone. Like I mentioned, Rex Rex Neighbors the Third is with us. Rex, I cannot believe it's been over a year since we've last had you on the podcast. That's criminal. Yeah, I was thinking about that yesterday because my AC went out uh, yesterday, and last time I was on, we had a power. I had a power outage during the record, and also had to record with no AC with my uh, phone on a hotspot. But the internet situation is much better today than last time, so I'm excited to be back. Awesome, and we're gonna have you. Actually, you're gonna be on a lot. Actually, both our guests are gonna be a lot. Uh, on the podcast and the upcoming weeks, as we'll talk about in the future when we lay down our schedule. Um, but look forward to a lot of Rex and a lot of Gunbuster in your future. Coop Bicknell is also on the call. Coop, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, hello, hi, hello. Uh, I On the note of GDQ, thank you, chefs, for allowing me to come on today. And also, uh, I was I, when I woke up this morning, I was all like, it's 7 a.m. and they're still going? 
My goodness. <laughs> wow. It do be like that. Oh, boy. Uh, my my hearts go out to all the hearts technical staff workers who were up. Who are, who, who are hopefully sleep? No, they probably had to get ready to check out right after that. Yeah, my tear goodness. down. Tear down is Ooh. real and it can hurt you. Oh, boy. Woof to the worst strike known to man. Huh. Coop, well. Coop, it's been an exciting Sunday for you. We got Suleta Sundays. Full disclosure, I haven't watched the episode yet, but I hear the body count has increased. Um, oh Ma- new Macross show just casually announced. Yeah, it w- I saw that it was announced at uh, one of the Walkure, the main band, the idol group from Macross Delta. Uh, their members have been having like a final tour, as they've been calling it. And, um, yeah, they just announced, hey, there's a new Macross show, and it's done by Sunrise, which is making me go, oh, okay, okay, so, are you, like, there, I, I, I'm, this is just, this is a fan speculating, one, I kind of hope that we get some hand-drawn robots this time around, because it's been, like, 20 years, but at the same time, I would like to see Satellite still involved, because, They've been they they've shepherded uh, the series for the last twenty years too, so we'll see we'll see. I'm excited no matter what they're gonna do with it. Um, just a little, um, it also makes me makes the brains my brain go because we say Suleta Sunday, man, that's gonna be a big production. All the and you're gonna want the the um, all the killers from the Sunrise production team on that. So that also begs the question, well, how long is uh, that little uh, Witch from Mercury show going to keep on going then? Because uh, you got to move some team members on over. <laughs> just just drop that take on Twitter and you'll get yelled at, Coop. Oh, I probably will be, but that's fine. It's not, it's, uh, you know, I, as much as I'm enjoying it, I would enjoy that G-Witch goes on for as long as it makes sense. But at the same time, I'm just like, yeah, people got to get thrown in different places, so... Yeah, and there's that Zia the recapture too. So who knows? <laughs> Can't even make it through our first Gunbuster record without mentioning Code Geass. That's mm-hmm. criminal. Chipun Wo. Um, <laughs> I I do want to mention here real quick since we are talking about the Gunbuster, and I think it's very important to mention this out. So just personally, I've worked with Discotech Media, who's licensed Gunbuster in North America, and. Uh, some of the other titles we'll be talking about over the course of this history. So just know that everything I talk about is my views only, and it doesn't express the views of my sometimes employers. So just putting that out there right now so people are aware of that. And on that note, if any company wants to give me money, feel free. But I am uh, I am biased slash unbiased as far as uh, who is uh, putting money in my pockets. <laughs> just spitting true takes here. Now, looking at my notes, I realize that we are in danger of recording our longest episode ever, especially when we have two excellent and knowledgeable guests on the pod. So to make sure we get through everything, I'm going to avoid any warm-up questions with the expectation that we'll get into everyone's history with Gynax in our follow-up episode where we'll have a bit more breathing room. This is, so I split the Gunbuster history into two parts. The first part, which is basically the founding of Gynax and a lot of pre-Gynax history. And then the follow-up will be, of course, the production history of Gunbuster itself, um, which I imagine will be about, the notes at least, will be half the length of this episode. So expect a somewhat shorter episode. 
Now, before we begin, I want to mention that we originally planned to have Sean O'Mara on this pod, um, webmaster of Zimmerit, but due to scheduling issues and the demands of parenthood, we couldn't make that happen at this time. Sean rules, make sure you go out and check out Zimmerit. It was a very invaluable resource for this episode in particular, and Coop and I have had pieces published there. Boom. Awesome. So, my friends, are you ready to jump into the Gynax lore, into the Gynax history? Let's go. Let's do her. So let's start at the beginning. Just imagine you're in you're in Osaka in the 1970s. Corporate interest and market concerns dictate so much in the Japanese animation industry, as it unfortunately does with so many things. Projects generally come together only after investors are courted, demographics are tested, and advertisers are secured. It's very much a top-down process. So much rests on the whims of executives who aren't artists. In this respect, the creation of Gynax was unique. The founders of Gynax were fans first, businessmen second. They proudly referred to themselves as otaku, a pejorative they sought to reclaim. Now, for the sake of our listeners, some of whom I imagine are younger than we all are, we should define what we mean, but especially what the founders of Gynax meant by otaku. So Rex Coop, you've, you've been in the fandom for years, decades. What do you mean when you use the word otaku? Or do you even use the word otaku anymore? Is that still in vogue? So that is a term that I kind of try to avoid. Like, as of the last, oh man, probably about 10 plus years but the way I've always seen Gynax is kind of like reclaiming the word. There's a lot of parallels and uh, overlaps with the way that Gynax was started and how they ran their business and everything. Uh, with specifically, and I'm going to compare them to uh, this movement a lot because uh, when I was first getting into anime, I was also getting into uh, like the DIY music scene, like punk and everything. Mm-hmm. And Gynax, I've always seen them through that lens. They're essentially, like, I hesitate to call them a punk band that makes anime, because they have more in common with, like, some of the DIY uh, record labels like SST and, like, Touch and Go and stuff. But I've always seen them as reclaiming otaku the same way as, like, the punks in the 80s were reclaiming that word and making it into their own thing they both come from that very uh diy sensibility and both are extremely downstream from the uh 60s 70s science fiction fandom which uh with gynax it's a lot more obvious but the way all of these things were set up they're very downstream from that especially with things like fanzines and the meetups and everything so mm-hmm. i i would say i also, I did not know much about underground music, so that is super fascinating, Rex. I know for myself, I when I think of the word otaku, 
uh, I, I kind of agree with you, Rex, with the whole decade ago, because I, I think of that as a word I gravitated towards when I was first getting into anime. It's like, these are my people. I know where they are. I'm not just the weirdo uh, in my high school. Like, here are the anime nerds. But as I've gotten older, the the term otaku is... I, I feel like the more I talk with old heads and other folks in and around... Like, it's just like, oh, we're just people who like anime. We don't really need to necessarily throw that term around here and there. But I definitely agree with you, because it feels like, given the origins of the word otaku, uh, it, it definitely feels like the guy next crew are all like, yeah, we're crazy. Yeah, we love this stuff. What are you going to do about it? And it was very brash and bold and in your face. Like, yeah, we love cartoons. What are you going to do about it, huh? Huh? Are you going to make garage kits? Are, are, are you going to do your own animation? I don't think so. We got that. Come at us. I don't think I've used the term otaku since high school, to be honest. And that's only when I was like flush in my early days of fandom with excitement. Like, yeah, I'm really into anime. Like Coop was just saying. Um, I don't think I've... I think I use it more as an academic term to refer to a movement of the late 1960s or late, late, late and early and mid 80s in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I hear the word, I think of that era of Japan, and then I think about uh, mid-2000s to early 2010s mm-hmm. uh, U.S. fandom specifically. There is that documentary, mm-hmm. uh, Otaku Unite. Like that, mm-hmm. the, It's very associated in my brain with that era of fandom now. Mm-hmm. Which, if you haven't watched Otaku Unite, I think the whole thing's on archive.org. I watched it, I rewatched it again, like, pretty recently. It's a very, like, that, and there's that Tokyo Pop show, The America's Greatest Otaku, that I uh, stitched back together and put on archive.org last year, I think it was. Yeah, those are very, like, interesting time capsules of what fandom was like back in, around the time, like, the DVD bust happened, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. That seeing the talk of the uh, of especially because when I think of too when you're talking about the modern issues of the word otaku, I think back because I did you guys know that Tokyo Pop had a social media website for a while there, and I was a on there when I was in the school. Website? Yes, Tokyo Pop had its own MySpace. It was it was wild, and I also quite remember people sharing AMVs, and also like a strong group of people of uh, being like, "Well, we gotta ban all the hentai on here because this shouldn't be on here." Like there was a big scene with that because people kept on posting stuff. Yeah, I, I when I think about that, it's uh, it, it, when I think about that era, it's like fandom still kind of nascent in a way kind of walking around and falling on its face it's enjoyable but then you also see some corporate interests going like oh these kids like that anime huh well we need to find the country's greatest otaku (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it does feel a bit that it was co-opted by corporate interest in the mid-2000s to uh, Mm -hmm. like cater to an imagined audience like if i were to use the word otaku now like in if i was having a conversation about anime with my students i would feel like a dad trying to fit in with a bunch mm-hmm. of youngins. Mm-hmm. And by no means do my students use the word otaku. No, because a lot... Because like I was saying, for most kids nowadays watching anime, it's just another thing they like. It's, there's no real... There's no real pull to the word. Like, I think even the old heads circles, when we talk about it, 
just from our conversation, some of those negative connotations kind of creeped back in, despite the fact there's this very, as Rex described, punk rock basis behind it, especially with the Gynax material we're talking about today. That being said, though, like, I feel like uh, punk rock and, like, the word punk in general also kind of has, like, a pretty negative connotation for yeah reasons as they're talking. I can see that. Like, yeah, no, I think about it. Like, because it's one of those things, like, I am very well-versed in that history, and I've been pretty immersed in that subculture for over half of my life at this point, so I've got a different window on it than I would say most, but my, most of the time, like, when I bring up that association I have with, like, Gynax and stuff, people just kind of, like, look at me and they're like, wait, like, uh, like, no effects? Like, the good Charlotte? Like, that kind of stuff? And I'm usually... I tend to use it as, like, a historical catch-all term for, uh... Because, I mean, that's what they used it back in the day, like, when it was happening. Like, a catch-all term for, like, all the DIY bands that were happening around, Mm -hmm. like, 79 to about, like, 86 before it... Well, New Wave splintered off from that pretty quickly, but it was still... They sounded the same, and the genre, like, the subgenre splintering off didn't start happening until the mid 80s for marketing reasons pretty much mm-hmm. yeah because now that you mention it it's also an interesting example of how etymology has kind of changed over time with both words because when you mentioned good charlotte it's it's very much the same tokyo pop in uh quotes kind of thing where people i think when when they think of punk and admittedly i'm not as versed in this i think my even my brain goes yeah blink 182 and stuff like that, you know, it's it's very different from, like, The Clash and Niggy Pop and all that from back in the 70s. Yeah, your Oingo Boingos. Mm. Now, returning to Gynax, Gynax often use the term otaku as, a, like, almost a designation to, or as a cudgel to ward off criticism, other times as a tool of self-deprecating humor. Carl Gustav Horn defines otakus as, quote, Fanatical devotees of anime or manga. Japanese speakers might use the term in a pejorative sense to denote someone lacking in social graces and breath who is obsessive about certain subjects. End quote. As an example of the term's negative connotations, refer to the late Hiroshi Yamauchi, former president of Nintendo, who once called RPG fans, quote, depressed gamers who like to sit alone in their dark rooms and play slow games. End quote. While he's not talking explicitly about anime fans, the sentiment is the same. The origins of Gainax date back to the late 70s in Osaka, where a group of college students met purely by chance. In the Notenki Memoirs, published in 2002, Yasuhiro Takeda, founder and future general manager of Gainax, writes, quote, What changed me was a series of encounters, an unbroken procession of chance meetings that thrust me from my young and vigorous but ultimately clueless boyhood and transform me into the man I am now, end quote. Various cultural currents were beginning to take shape in the 70s, the most relevant of which, to our discussion, was a combined appreciation for the science fiction genre and the animation medium. Some of these early touchstones include Space Battleship Yamato in 1974, Star Wars in 1978, approximately one year after its American release, and Mobile Suit Gundam in 1979, These movies and shows, which have become sprawling multimedia franchises, not only captured the hearts of young people, but helped galvanize fandom and establish otakudom 
or nerd culture as a thing. There's this. Uh, there's a bit from Empire of Dreams, which if you don't know, is a 2004 documentary produced for the DVD release of the original trilogy. This was this was like standard Stephen Hero. I'm sick from school viewing material. I would watch Empire of Dreams. I watched the appendices and all the extended editions of Lord of the Rings. All the extras content and documentaries included therein. So I've seen this documentary a bunch, and I immediately thought about it when I was putting together these notes. Um, and there's this bit from the middle of the documentary talking about when New Hope released internationally that really speaks to Star Wars as a cultural phenomenon that transcended geographical borders. The cultural impact of Lucas's outer space story was greater than anything even he could have imagined, not just in the United States, but around the globe. It wasn't a story of cultures, it wasn't a story of nationalities, it wasn't a story of geography. It was a story of mankind escaping his environment to a life which everybody expects to happen, but uh, George Lucas was able to illustrate for us. This was what made it a success worldwide. The movie did spectacular business across Europe, but when Alan Ladd Jr. attended the premiere in Japan one year later, he feared that the silence which followed the screening indicated that Star Wars would be a flop. He was relieved when he later found out that silence was the greatest compliment a Japanese audience could give a film. Now, Rex and Coop, you're both well-versed in this period of pop culture in Japan. Can you speak to or about this explosion of fandom? I mean, like I mentioned a little bit ago, it was all downstream pretty much from like the science fiction fandom of the 60s and the 70s. I feel like, I mean, now it's starting to get its due, but specifically, I want to point out uh, and shout out the Star Trek fandom from like, I got, oh man, that would be like 60, 70 years ago. But all, everything pretty much that came after that fandom-wise in general owes almost basically everything to the Star Trek fans of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty much both Trek and Who for the most part when it comes to that. And then from there you got uh, Ultraman and all the Subaraya productions. So, um, Plus with yeah, Trek, a- you have the first ship, too. You have Kirk and Spock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And admittedly, I'm a little more knowledgeable on the 80s side of things. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, there was definitely... Because especially in a, b- a bunch of the works that were starting to pop up around the time of Star Wars, there was also a lot of... A lot more... I, I wouldn't say a lot more interest, because there's still a lot of interest, but in the works of, like, Heinlein and Asimov, finally starting to, like... Like, again, like you were talking, Rex, when I think of those works, because my dad talked about, like, that and doing a lot growing up. And, like, the whole vibe I get around those were people who either went home and read those and had these great ideas that spawn out of it. Or they were hanging out with their friends in, like, coffee clubs and bars reading this stuff and just shooting the shit. And that's how, like... That's how a lot of this stuff got born, because a lot of people got together. Yo, that shit's cool. Yeah, that shit is cool. Should we make something like it? Yeah. It's, it's kind of hard to do, though. Yeah, it is. We got to try it anyways? Yeah, yeah, let's let's do that. You know, I think Trekkie is another term that kind of like otaku that has fallen out of favor and fallen out of fashion. Like, of course, it's been used as a pejorative, but I feel mm-hmm. like the... I feel like Trek is so mainstream, 
comparatively, that no one refers to themselves as Trekkie anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, like, most of my friends are Star Trek people, and uh, I haven't heard the phrase Trekkie come out of anybody's mouth in a very long time. I don't think I would bump on it as harshly if someone used otaku in public. Like, otaku is very similar to gamer. Like, I have a visceral reaction mm. when someone says gamer. And to be honest, a negative reaction. Um, and otaku, if someone were to use otaku, it would just sound so forced and awkward that it would kind of... I, it would feel very alienating to me as a speaker and a listener. Because mm-hmm. when I think about that, too, I also think of going to cons like... Like this, this is probably totally untrue. But I also think of the association of Trekkies, maybe being like I think of Smash players all of a sudden with not bathing and taking care of themselves. Like there, there are Smash players who do bathe. I've met them. They're wonderful people. Um, uh, I know. I probably you probably think I'm lying. They exist. Uh, but. Coop, the Smash community is going to come for us. Uh, well, eh, they're, they're, they're not worth the trouble. Um, I could see a lot of those negative connotations being thrown around with Trekkies. Although, at least for me, it's it was always, especially like when we were at Otakon last year, it was really cool. Hey, I think there was one other person aside from Dave Majors who was wearing a Trek uniform, and I'm like, okay... Repping the Starfleet out here. Thank you. We need somebody doing that at least. We just need to get PMC into a GDQ event so he could wear. Uh, I don't know if PMC has even decided upon a uniform of choice if he ever got Deep Space Nine in. Oh, I already talked to David Majors about this. Uh, he instructed me where I could pick up a late a late series uh, DS9 uniform. So the answer I have t- and I've told GDQ staffers that were I to get DS9 the Fallen in. Me and anyone appearing on stage with me would be committed to wearing a Star Trek uniform. Yes. That I would be buying for this express purpose. I do not at this time own a Star Trek uniform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, PMC's recording in his room, and behind him is just a closet filled with Star Trek uniforms. He's lying (laughs) for all I own. It's funny, talking about Star Wars, I mean, I think Star Wars started out as mainstream, because I can't think of a pejorative for diehard Star Wars fans. It's just always been in the zeitgeist. Unless I'm wrong. I can't think of anything. No, that's what it seems like. Because, I mean, I haven't done as much research on it as I have, like, other things. But from what I've gathered, as soon as Star Wars dropped, pretty much, it was, like, a massive thing that everybody, for the most part, it didn't... I mean, there were, like... There there was a period of time where, like, there were hardcore Star Wars fans that people were like, eh, but that's anything that happens. Mm-hmm. It pretty mainstream success mm. i imagine a big part of that too is the the demographic involved like i feel like one, one thing i think of in the difference between star wars and star trek is the star wars feels like it's got a lot of toy marketing going on which is not a thing i associate as much with star trek mm. Mm. also it's weird to think about now but it dropped like right in the middle of the new hollywood movement and george lucas was kind of like a hip director guy at the time like before that he had done uh THX 1138 and American Graffiti and American Graffiti mm. was a big mainstream head too so he wasn't it, it was like he was the American Graffiti guy dropping something just completely out there and wild so 
We just need Filoni to return to the American graffiti verse and really uh, revitalize it. <laughs> Where's my sequel to more American graffiti, Dave Filoni? Uh, yeah, I'm surprised. Like there hasn't been. I don't know if Disney has the rights to that because I don't know if George Lucas had the rights. But I feel like American Graffiti would make a good like Disney Plus show. Yep. Well, now that Willow is just gone, it's gone. I'm so mad about that. I didn't get the chance to watch it. I'm gonna have to resort to other means. But I remember like my mom was talking about it a lot one week, and then it came out, and we never watched it. So criminal. Now, I'm glad, uh, Rex, you brought up the new Hollywood movement, because we're going to touch upon that very briefly now, actually. But the parallels don't end there. For one, the fan-turned-animator pipeline that led to the creation of Gainax shares more than a few things in common with the rising tide of independent filmmaking in post-Vietnam America. Case in point, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Growing up, they were both science fiction and film buffs, Lucas ravenously consumed pulpy serials like Flash Gordon, while Spielberg, as was dramatized recently in The Fablemans, made amateur films in his backyard with his Super 8 camera. The two met while at USC and would go on to challenge the stagnant and studio-dominated film industry of the late 60s and early 70s. And the rest, as they say, is history. Speaking of Spielberg and Super 8 cameras, now would be the perfect time to introduce Hideaki Anno, the director of Gunbuster, and Gainax's star creative. Like Spielberg, he became enamored with filmmaking at a young age. In his second year of high school, he used all his savings to buy an 8mm camera, which he put to good use. I did a little deep diving into like Anno's time at high school, and I came across a short that he directed. I couldn't actually watch the short, but I found like a brief description of it. It's called uh, Nakamurider. Um, it starred his school's student council president. It was made as the art club ex- exhibit for the school festival and features, even back then, allegedly some of his signature flourishes as a director, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, He even went so far in his last year of high school to form an indie film production group named Shadow with his friends. I don't know if that was an acronym for anything. After watching Shin Kamen Rider with zero Kamen Rider knowledge, um, I didn't know if that was like a secret organization in a 60s or 70s tokusatsu show or anything like that. Coop, what is it in Kamen Rider? Oh, it's Shocker. Shocker. Yeah, I don't think it had a, a acronym behind it until Ano got his hands on it. Mm. Yeah, that makes yeah. Turn everything to bureaucracy. I eat that shit up. <laughs> yeah, God, that movie slapped too. I'm so glad. Did we all get to see it in theaters? I know PMC. You're at GDQ. I would have to have. I would have to drag PMC kicking and screaming to the movie theater. I would see that movie for fun, please. All right, I. I had a lot of fun watching Shin Godzilla without really any prior knowledge of Godzilla besides the 90s Hollywood movie. I'm sure Kamen Rider would be fun too. Also, honestly, 
if I ever get into playing weird 90s Gundam games um, and I wanted to play the Great Battle games, it would probably help to have a little Kamen Rider knowledge, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Also, since you brought up uh, PS1 games, there is a Kamen Rider game. Here we go. Um, <laughs> for PS1, the, it's a fighting game based on the original series, and it nails the aesthetic real well. It's just called Common Rider. I think Kaze developed it, the pinball games people. Okay. It's worth looking into. It's a lot of Is fun. it like a 2D fighter, 3D fighter? It's a 3D fighter. Okay. I Sorry, last night I was coming up with future GDQ plans, and I was thinking about running a 3D fighter PS1 mystery tournament shuffler at a future GDQ event. So I really, truly need... I need to scrape the bottom of the barrel. Not saying the game is bad, but... Would people at a future GDQ event be surprised to find themselves playing the Common Rider Fighter in a round of a tournament? I hope so. There's multiple Common Rider PS1 games too. You got Kuga, Ryuki, Agito. There's also a PS2. I, I wonder if anybody. I think somebody's done a run of this. I haven't checked. There's a Resident Evil style Common Rider game on the PS2 that has Common Rider Black, Agito, and then uh, the original Rider in V3 all working together in a weird time time travel plot. It's dope. <laughs> good, good. You have my attention. Oh, man. The listener can't see it, but I definitely made a face while you're <laughs> describing that. I'm going to be tracking this down later this evening. This is, this is, I think it's Kamen Rider Climax Heroes? It's called uh, Kamen Rider Segi no Kifu, or Gene- Genealogy of Justice. Okay. That's my favorite fire what a name. Name. genealogy of justice. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Take a shot anyone on Giant Robot FM says, well, there's a PS2 game. Like just like <laughs> mysteriously reveals a PS2 game uh, in front of the uh, the the podcast crew. <laughs> well, you know there's a PS2 game for that. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Oh, it is Kavia. Wow. All right. Oh, yeah, of course it would be. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how to transition from Kavya and dank-ass PS2 games to Anno's time as a high school senior. But nonetheless, um, during his high school years, Anno was a huge fan of Godzilla and Ultraman. And he tried making his hand, he tried his hand at making homages to his favorite kaiju and tokusatsu movies with said 8mm camera. Which, if you know anything about his later career, is fitting. Lucas might say that it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> we should just get PMC to add in the sound clip there of Lucas going, it rhymes. A little turtle voice. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like poetry. Stanzas, they rhyme. Real quick, I love whenever he appears. Uh, that, that When the guy's walking down the street and Lucas just appears running a daily errand, that's one of my favorite videos of all time. Uh, it, it reminds me of also the meme of... Uh, uh, George Lucas appearing in front of the guy doing a raging demon. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to jump ahead, but while in college, Anno directed his own Ultraman parody film in which he played Ultraman himself and completely demolished the set, explosions and all. In Extracurricular Lesson with Hideaki Anno, a documentary that came out post-Ava, there is this great bit with Anno on top of an elementary school playground doing Ultraman, Ultraman and Kamen Rider poses. Um, this is all to say Anno's credentials as a fan are unimpeachable. 
I, I will say there's a great um, moment in that documentary too, where he's talking with some of the kids about like their favorite common writers, and he's like, "Yeah, I love Stronger," and uh, it, it's that documentary is great too because you can obviously tell through watching the whole thing is Anno doesn't know how to act around kids too terribly much, but you see over time he's like he loosens up because he's all like. Oh, I'm just a big kid too. We have a lot more in common than I thought. <laughs> I forgot I was going to add this to the notes. Uh, have y'all read Insufficient Direction? No. The manga mm-hmm. that his wife did? I've oh, heard of it though. It's on my to read yeah. list once we get around to covering it. I've seen the, the bits about, um, she did about when, um, Ano got the Fies gear from Comrade Fies and like, Henshin's, and it's like, oh, it lights up, and she's like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, he wore. I think it was it was either that suit or another one because there's a chapter about their wedding, and uh, he wears that to the wedding, and then during <laughs> their honeymoon, uh, he's he plans it basically around uh, them going to go visit all of these uh, tokusatsu like set locations. It's basically about how. Uh, they start dating and she just kind of has to like help him function as a person while he's pursuing all of his interests and stuff and making sure that he gets like that he feeds himself properly and things like that. It's a really fun read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got it. We got it. We covered fucking the men who created Gundam. We're definitely going to cover that on the podcast. I've been meaning to read that. I'll get around to it. I need to. Yeah, actually I, wound up picking up a copy right after I watched that documentary because I needed more. It's real good. There's also an anime adaptation, but I haven't watched it yet. Mm-hmm. I, Is there I also a PS2 see... game? There should be. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say on um, one of the Shin... Uh, not I would say Shin Eva, and I think of the whole Rebuild trilogy, uh, qu- the Quadrilogy. I forget what the name of it. Tetology? Let's go with that. Uh, for the four films, there's a, there's a special feature on one of those that's done in Mayoko Anno's um, uh, insufficient, insufficient Direction style about the founding of Kara and the process of going through and making all this stuff um, and just how long it took. And the fact, uh, I think there was a bit too talking about how Anna was so burnt out at a point. He's like, how about you go do the wind rises and come back? And then they came back to it. I think this might've been around the final film. Now I think of it. Cause there was a, there's a bunch of great documentary stuff. Uh, the challenge of, uh, Shin Evangelion that's hanging out. I think you can watch that either on, uh, retro crush. I think that might be premium or on, uh, Amazon prime. If you have that as well, real good stuff. Uh, Real good stuff about, and stuff we'll get to later, Anno's uh, Macross days, too. But out of all the Gainax superfans, Toshio Okada, the studio's principal founder and first president, might be the most spirited. Memorably, Okada went to see Star Wars dressed as Vader and cosplayed as Char while selling fanzines at conventions, a tableau that would be recreated in Otaku no Video. His colleagues jokingly referred to him as Otaking, in fact, he's written several books on otaku culture, and post-Gynax has taught classes at the university level on the subject. 
Among other things, he currently maintains Toshio Okada Zemi, a YouTube channel where he lectures about anime. I recommend checking out a recent video of his called, quote, Why Anime is on the Rise Even Though the Industry is So Poor, end quote, in which he sheds light on the many unfair labor practices that are endemic in this in- industry. Fortuitously, these fans, Takeda, Okada, Ano, Yamaga, met at the exact right time at the exact right place. Takeda says, quote, Back then, the world was in the midst of a sci-fi craze. Almost every university in Japan had sci-fi clubs, ranging from the very small to the extremely large. End quote. If not for these clubs, Gainax would never have been founded. Let's review some facts. Yasuhiro Takeda, future Gainax general manager, entered Kindai University in 1976. Toshi Okada, future Gainax producer and president, entered Osaka Electrocommunication University in 1977. Hiroyuki Yamaga, future Gainax writer, producer, and president, entered Osaka University of Arts in 1980. Hideaki Anno, future Gainax director and mechanical designer, entered Osaka University of Arts in 1980. And Takami Akai, future Gainax illustrator and animator, entered Osaka University of Arts in 1980. So you can see, if they were not in Osaka at this exact right time, at, that ex- at the exact right age, Gainax arguably would never have been founded. In 1978, Yasuhiro Takeda, an engineering student, attended a local science fiction convention called SetoCon. Quote, People not in the know might wonder what the heck kind of sci-fi event this was, Takeda remembers. And in true Shikoku fashion, There were competitions to see who could eat their udon noodles the fastest, while in the main hall, people were sitting around in circles having lively discussions, end quote. Honestly, this doesn't sound all that different from anime conventions today. So at this point, I gotta ask, what's y'all's history with anime cons? Coop, we've, we've had the privilege of attending Otakon together. You have some convention experience, no? Yes, yes. Uh, my first con was Yomacon 2008 in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, it was a super fun show. There was like a ton of, uh, there was a couple of tokusatsu guests there, uh, folks who'd worked on Garo, Comrade of the First. I met uh, Paul Schreer, who played uh, Bulk on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, along with Walter Jones. Um, uh, who played Zack on Power Rangers. So that that was a fun show. Um, but also, at the same time, uh, I, I this is funny, because I, I was 14. I was 14 in running around that... R- running around that show was my freshman year of high school, too. 14, running around. My parents just kind of went wherever. They're like, ah, whatever. And I just walked around myself the whole time, kind of getting into trouble, and I'm just like... Man, I don't know if I'd send 14-year-old me to a con unsupervised like that again, but whatever. Uh, But it was a good time. I I had a lot of fun, and then over the years since then, went there was like a local con near me that I went to that only lasted one year. And then Yomacon was a regular mainstay for me, like on and off, like before and after college uh, for the most part. Uh, It's been a fun con. Uh, I've enjoyed going there, even though there's... Like there's, it's split between two buildings that are like at like half a mile apart, if not more. 
And the the structure of the Renaissance Center where they have it in Detroit right now is kind of it's kind of a nightmare to walk around, especially when it's all packed. Um, but uh, that's that's a fun show on occasion. And then I've been to a couple other shows across the Midwest, um, uh, not anime related, but well, kind of. I've been to TFCon in Toronto. Shout out to the TFCon folks because they know how to put on a hell of a show. If you're into the Transformers, go check that out. That's uh, their, their show in Toronto is super chill. Met a lot of cool people there. Had a fun time. Was also 19 at the time. And you guys know what the legal drinking age in Canada is. So let me tell you. 19-year-old me was stoked. White Russians all day at the time. And yeah. And then Otakon was the most recent. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting going from being a fan to... Um, knowing some industry people in it too, just because even going to cons for me might be changing a little bit, but we'll see. It's, it's, it's interesting process. Cause honestly too, I had a thought, uh, cause I went to a con in the middle of college, um, in the Chicago area. And I thought to myself, you know, it's fun going to this, but I might want to do something at this next time I go. And heck next time I went to, to a con full force Otakon, I had a panel. How about that? Rex, I know you have a wealth of con experience. I look at you and go, Rex has been to some anime cons. Maddie yeah, told me about, about the Texas yeah. scene. <laughs> oh man, yeah. We we talk about that like pretty frequently. Uh I started going to cons around the time I guess I was like 14 or 15 it was a school trip with our uh, digital arts club we went to uh onicon one onicon's still going it's no longer in houston it's in galveston but that was my first convention their very first year and i was just i had been like i mean i had been watching anime for a while then but that summer before my freshman year of high school is when i got like really really heavy into it um Basically, a friend of mine, his older brother, worked at Blockbuster and bought a bunch of new type USAs when they were coming out. And that friend brought them to my house. And I was like, this is so cool. I didn't know there was more than just like what they were showing on Cartoon Network. Blah, blah. So I got the chance to go to that convention and it was a very life-changing experience for me i spent a lot of time in the amv room and the uh they had an arcade set up which was just heaven i played a lot of uh super dodgeball for neo geo there it's also the first time i saw guilty gear which uh another very pivotal moment in my life um, and then after that i was hooked i didn't go to as many while i was in high school like i did OniCon like most years and stuff, but it wasn't till the summer after high school I met um, one of my friends who's still a very close friend, my friend Key. Uh, we worked together at Starbucks, and uh, they were like, hey, I've got a group going to, I can't remember which, I think it might have been Akon in Dallas. And they invited me to go to Akon with them. And then Akon became a regular, like, staple thing that we did every year until uh, my mid-20s, I think, was when I finally stopped going. But I only stopped going because I had started doing panels. And Akon coincided with Comic Palooza in Houston. 
So I was paneling at Comic Palooza a whole bunch. I pretty much did that until around the pandemic, I think, was, yeah, because they stopped. So then I stopped paneling there and have just not submitted one yet. But Texas's con scene is really wild. I think I mentioned this too on the last episode I was on. It's very these days centered around partying and like people in their early 20s partying as much as possible, which uh, I will be 34 in about three weeks and I feel very like alienated from youth party scene. It's not really a thing Mm. I particularly want to do. So I'm looking more towards uh, going out of state for conventions now. I was going to try to do Otakon this year, but it didn't come together. There's just too much stuff going on, but Mm. that's something I definitely want to try for next year. I'm kind of, I'm kind of there with you. Oh, go ahead, Rex. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh no, I was gonna say, I was just gonna say, I have a very like long story, like history with cons, and Mm -hmm. it's good times. (laughs) Because I'm kind of there with you on the feeling uh, a little too old. Um, especially with what you've, what I've heard of the Texas scene, because the last right before the potent pandemic, potent potent right before the potemic, the potemic river. Um, but um, right before that, the last Yomacon I went to in 2019, there was just going around because I was mostly hanging out with friends. I did get a sense of, am I too old for this? And some because it's also very much kind of a young twenties party kind of over the years of noticed. It's also has a bit more of an FGC focus these days too. But uh, for for instance, I thought I saw a cosplayer of a uh, FGC pro player when in actuality it was the, it was the person, not a co- not a cosplayer. Um, but yeah, that that kind of made Otakon last year really great because I'm just like, oh, okay. There, 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 there. There's older people who are into this stuff too. I don't feel completely out of the loop. <laughs> yeah, yeah I feel like old, there's that. Pretty old. Yeah, and like also too, Coop, you had mentioned uh, like things that you do at cons, like changing. Something I've like been thinking about a whole lot over the years is like because I like I feel the older that we get and stuff, like our responsibility abilities i mm-hmm. guess is the cons change and there's like roles that if you go to these things long enough you get shoved into things like OniCon, the one the first con i went to uh my friend key that i mentioned works for them and works for akon and anime fest up in dallas and like the last couple OniCons i've gone to i showed up without a badge and just wound up getting put to work and mm-hmm. I don't remember the last time that I trying to think. I think the last time I went to a con just to go to a con would have been around 2015. Everything I've gone to after that, I've either been on staff. I never sign up for staff or any of these things. It just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm either mm-hmm. like on staff or paneling or there is even when i was living in central texas i went to alamo city comic-con as a vendor helping out a uh i worked a table for a friend of mine who runs a zine fest in austin mm. just did that all weekend and it was it was a fun time so i've gotten to see these things from all different angles but i 
yeah, the older you get, I feel like you just kind of get shoved into stuff like that, which is cool. Mm. I mm. like it. That's why if you're an anime fan in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, that's why you have to unionize so you don't get dragged uh, against your will into <laughs> staffing an anime convention when you show up at the door. Yeah. Like, I like not paying to get into stuff, but also... That is nice. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have as much anime convention experience as you two. I am I went to a Big Apple Anime Fest, which was a... a convention in new york city that ran for like three years before it transformed to something else i think i went in 2002 or 2003 my i dragged my dad i convinced my dad to turn this into like a birthday party when i was in middle school so i dragged all my nerd friends all my otaku otaku friends if you will to anime nyc or big apple anime fest it's become anime nyc and uh, i'm sure my dad was scarred for life after that experience (laughs) i so there was a year in high school, where I took my friends with me to Omicon, and they, uh, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say one of them names because they're a public presence. My friend Chris Wilson, the voice actor, he, him, and another friend of mine were all like, you know, we, if we really want to embarrass you in front of your parents, we could just go buy you a body pillow cover, the most embarrassing one we could find. And I was like, thank God you didn't do that. Thank God you didn't do that. <laughs> Oh, man, so my ex, uh, my ex-wife is a high school teacher, and she started, like, uh, this is, like, she started teaching, like, two or three years before the pandemic, so we mm-hmm. were still going to cons and everything uh, before that. Um, we went to, this happened a few times, but I remember very vividly the first time that it happened, she ran into uh, some of her students at a con. She was in full cosplay. I don't remember what she was wearing. I think she was April O'Neil from Ninja Turtles. And uh, she ran into a group of her students that she was teaching freshmen at the time. But they, mm-hmm. they were, like, scoping out body pillows and stuff. And she went over and, like, talked to them. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, boy. Okay. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was like, like, yeah, I mean, retro, like, looking back on it, uh, things that happened uh, that transpired during the relationship and after, I'm not surprised, but I, like, (laughs) at the time, I was like, wow, I can't believe you just did that. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) I would have turned to dust if I saw one of my students at an anime convention, whether I was in cosplay or not in Mm -hmm. cosplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my uh, friends that I go to cons with regularly, who I also uh, play in a band with, he's also a high school teacher, and uh, he always like wears like things to be inconspicuous when we go out. And doesn't like to be in like band pictures or anything. He always mm-hmm. puts stuff in front of his face or hides because he's mortified by the idea of the students finding out about his like outside of school life. Uh, trust me, I know the feeling. Hmm. Way back when I also went to uh, two Anime Next conventions and Otakon with Coop recently. PMC, do you have any con experience? Anime convention? Uh, a little bit. Uh, I did go to Otakon in 2008 uh, with some with some college friends. That was kind of a one-off thing. And then, you know, shout-outs to all the people who, who show up to MAGFest because MAGFest has a pretty sizable cosplay and anime thing going on as well. 
that's mm-hmm. a con I went to a lot in in the 2010s, and you know, hopefully we'll go to again at some point. I've, I haven't been this decade yet, uh, but you know, I know that that event has come back and they're doing well. So, and they also survived the the, the leadership turnover as well uh, mm-hmm. from from 2020. So, I think that's that's pretty much the most of it. Uh, you know, would I go to one again? Hopefully, we'll see. I also so it's just one of my bucket list shows for sure. Like I've mm. always wanted to go out to that one. Uh, I'm also curious too, PMC, because with Rex and I talking about changing responsibilities going in a, going to a con, what's that kind of been like with GDQ just ending? Because there's like before, I'd imagine you've been around that community and maybe been to some events just as hey, I'm hanging out. But now you're like you're somewhat involved. You're also running. Like how how does that change things for you i'm curious i think for me i'm i'm in a pretty fortunate situation in that gdq is pretty pretty clear about lines between volunteers runners uh hosts that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so you know if there were a true emergency could i could i be a pinch hitter for something maybe but they're they have pretty clearly defined documentation Mm -hmm. especially the producers I'm fortunate enough to be friends with um, you know members of the, the full time staff and the producers and things like that, um, and so you know I, I can see what they do. I think they kind of enjoy having me around as a non staffer person that they also know doesn't just talk about shit to anyone. So uh, you know I, I get to be a a friend of staff, which is a pretty good, pretty comfortable position to to be in. Uh, you get you know to help responsible people relax, which is nice. And I get to be a runner too. Um, I how much are those things related? I like to think not at all, but we all know if you know people, it helps you make decisions. And so, for sure, you know, I, I imagine that can that can affect things you know subconsciously. Uh, so we'll see. My my intention certainly is to continue being a runner. Would I ever volunteer for something if it aligns well with my with, with what I can do for the organization? Sure, but I also know that I enjoy not knowing things as well. <laughs> Same. And so I'm. I'm happy to go on vacation and not know things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, returning to Takeda, if you remember, it's 1970-something, 78, 79. He's at SatoCon. Now, this would have been an uneventful, albeit enjoyable, outing, if not for a meeting that took place that night. As the evening wore on and the conversations became more intimate, helped, no doubt, by liberal amounts of alcohol, a friend of Takeda's introduced him to Toshio Okada on the grounds that they shared similar interests and would probably get along. In those days, Takeda remarked, quote, We didn't have the word otaku yet, but my first impression of Okada was, Here's a geek if I've ever seen one, with his girly long hair and his freakishly excited way of speaking. All I could think was, This guy is exactly like me. End quote. And Takeda's instincts did him well. They hit it off. Over the next few months, Takeda and Okada attended cons together and co-indulged in their hobbies. You know, what slacker students do with their free time. Their devotion to anime trumped academics, it's fair to say. In fact, Okada would end up dropping out of college in the spring of 1981. Takeda would follow suit the following fall. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. School's not out yet. While in college, Takeda and Okada became a recognizable pair in Osaka nerd circles to otaku about town, if you will. They developed such a reputation that they were asked to perform with sounds like a combination of vaudeville and stand-up at local conventions. 
this reminds me back in my mall ratting days when we'd like we're all into ska and we'd skank like i'm thinking of like public demonstrations of fandom and that's the first mm-hmm. thing that came to mind like the weird shit you get up to in a jersey mall when you were in your mid-teens and it was 2002 yeah so i worked in a mall starbucks and oh man how old was i i was like 20 21 this was when uh homestock was oh boy Mm. yeah so once a month i want to say on fridays it might have been thursdays because now that i'm thinking about it it was at like a weird like time where this sort of thing normally wouldn't happen but uh there was a homestuck meetup at the mall like with full cosplay and everything, just all of these homosucks, which is something that I was never like super into, but one of my coworkers was, and they wound up like talking to the meetup people and joining like the homesuck meetup at the mall <laughs> with them. Whenever I'm in my local dead mall, which is frequently, I, I go there for lunch a lot and just to, I, the vibes, of course, are immaculate. So I, I guess you what? Thinking done. Wait, are you questioning me, PMC? Yes. That's where I saw, saw Shin Kamen Rider. Okay, the movie theater is good. The movie theater is the only part of that mall I've been to uh, in the past the, decade. The, the mall is great because it's dead and it's, it's memories. Uh, all right, keep, memories. keep going. Keep going. Did, did somebody say bad food takes? <laughs> no, I, I had enough of that last week. Thank you very much. <laughs> I but have a time- dead mall take, though. I mm. am a huge fan of. I am a huge fan of dead malls. I, know my, like, I, I like. I'm a mall guy in general. Like I have recurring dreams about shopping malls and going to the malls. One of my favorite things. Like I still, even now, like at least once a week, try and go to the mall. Um, but dead malls are my favorite. We've got like quite a few in Houston that I really like. Yeah. I'm next to two malls. One is dead, dead, like soup. It's dead. It's dead, Jim. The mall I frequent is like 70% active, but there's enough of a like a moribund feel that I just like eat up the the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the mall back home and near next to my hometown um is like outside of the Barnes and Noble on one end. That's like the life is split up between the two ends, the Barnes and Noble and then the restaurants and the movie theater. In between is a no man's land. Of rest of like jewelry stores and different things, and even scarier, uh, there was a report that oh, this is also one of the biggest human trafficking sites in Michigan. Ha! That escalated. Yeah. 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 We have uh, we had one. It's being like revitalized currently. Uh, Booker T, the wrestler, owns like a large part of it, and like film shows and has like his wrestling gym there and everything. Wow. But for most of my teens, uh, through, I guess, my late 20s, uh, it was super, like, dead to the point where the storefronts that were unoccupied, they were painting, like, fake storefronts on it. And I oh, my it goodness. Good stuff. Yeah. And it didn't have air conditioning in half of it, and it hadn't been updated since... Uh, well, it was built in the early 90s, and for a while it was, like, the, like, upscale mall, but mm-hmm. I don't know what and something something happened it died off real quick in the late 90s but we used to go there a lot they had a uh, arcade there that was pretty good for a very long time like that arcade was the only reason to go to that mall and then uh, it got hit by a hurricane and the roof of the arcade caved in but, uh. 
it was really nice. It was very like vaporwave. Mm, yeah. Now, by all accounts, these performances were well received. Takeda enjoyed it so much that he vowed to host his own science fiction convention, an idea he presented to his college anime club. Unfortunately, despite his enthusiasm, the idea was shot down by the upperclassmen, who felt his goals were unrealistic. But he didn't let them keep him down. Takeda kept at it and eventually won over some allies. With the help of Hiroaki Inoue, another future Gainax co-founder, beginning to see a pattern, and a few other friends, Takeda and company hosted their own convention, the fourth iteration of an event called the Sci-Fi Show. As Takeda describes it, the opening ceremony consisted of a gathering of fans, many of whom were in cosplay, who packed into a room to watch footage of the Apollo 11 landing. If all this sounds low-rent and low-key, well, that's because it was. By today's standards, the fourth annual sci-fi show was the definition of modest. But to his credit, Takeda did take some swings. He reached out to Studio Nue, best known for their design work on Space Space Battleship Yamato and Galaxy Express 999, and secured their participation in the costume portion of the event. And by all accounts, everyone had a great time, and Takeda considered his first convention a success. However, he wasn't done. For his next project, he set his sights higher, aspiring to host an event of a larger scale. Daikon 3. So, Daikon is the regional name of the Nippon or Nihon Sci-Fi Taikai, which from here on out I'm going to refer to as the Japan Science Fiction Convention, because I don't want to sound too pretentious, that has been running annually since 1962. The location of the convention changes each year, hence the use of region-specific abbreviations. For example, when the convention is held in Tokyo, it's called Tokon, which is funny. Kyoto, it's called Miyakon. Nagoya, Meikon. And of course, Daikon, when it's in Osaka. The name Daikon is a play on the way Osaka is written in Japanese. The kanji for the O in Osaka can be pronounced Dai, meaning big. For examples of this, refer to numerous uh, precedents in video games and anime, Die Guard, uh, the Japanese name for the Phoenix Wright series, which I have never pronounced in out loud, but um, actually no, the the great the great Ace Attorney, the more recent uh, Phoenix Wright spinoff series, Die Gaikuten Saibon, maybe um, of course it means the great uh, Team Guy Die Gurren from Gurren Lagann, like the pr- list is practically endless. You've encountered a die before; it just means big. And of course, con refers to convention. Daikon is also a play on daikon, spelled with a K, a large white radish used in Japanese cuisine. If you've ever played a shmup before, you've probably have shot your fair share of daikons floating in your general direction. 
So I went through the whole list of uh, the 60-odd conventions that have been hosted since its inception. I bumped on one in particular. In 2014, the convention took place for the first time in Tsukasa, a city in Japan. Any idea what the convention's nickname was? I told my my co-host here to not look this up. I need pure reactions. Does anyone want to take a guess? Sukandi's Nuts. Close. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, close. Uh, I was thinking about this like too much yesterday. And because uh, Sue, I was thinking Sue, oh, too. And then I highly doubt that this is what it's called, but condos. Like mm. doses do and condos. Mm hmm. There's, I also know Sue uh, is also at times could be pain, pain con. <laughs> so, you know. I'm also All good th- guesses. <laughs> uh, PMC is inadvertently the closest. It's NutsCon. N-U-T-S hyphen con. Amazing. I didn't Amazing. look into I, the etymology of the word or the abbreviation. I love I, it. But That's I had to point it out. There's only been one NutsCon so far. <laughs> um, now, fun fact, there have been seven Daikons. The last time the convention took place in Osaka was in 2008 that auspicious year. Actually, it, it probably took place right before the banks were collapsing. Mm-hmm. Now, the 61st uh, Japan Science Fiction Convention is scheduled for August 5th and August 6th of this year and is set to take place in Saitama. Since it'll be the second time Saitama's hosting the event, it will be called SciCon 2, which is appropriate because it's a sci-fi con- uh, convention. Arguably, that's the most appropriate appropriate abbreviation there has been. Now, after getting the approval to host the 20th Japan Science Fiction Convention in Osaka, Takeda began putting a team together. He secured sponsorships, formed an executive committee, and drummed up a lot of noise for the event. However, they were faced with the decision of the opening film. This is where Gainax, not technically, but this is where spiritually Gainax was born. Now, Rex Coop, can you speak to the tradition of opening films specifically or opening ceremonies more generally at anime cons? So I uh, personally have never been a huge like opening ceremonies uh, person. Like I've gone to, I've I've gone to a fair share of them, but it's usually not a uh, event that I typically like try go out of my way to go to because mm-hmm. it's almost always around when I like to eat dinner, mm-hmm. depending depending on the con. Because sometimes they're like earlier in the day and everything, but uh, I've been to some cons where they've had like very weak openings and it just kind of like starts the convention off with a wet fart and mm-hmm. you need to kind of like the opening ceremony is set the stage for the rest of the con it sets the tone for the weekend they introduce the guests a lot of times they speak about like what's going to happen at the convention and all of that and like putting it together and thanking the people that were involved and yeah I feel like, because I've never been to a convention where they've had an opening film, so I can only imagine what it would have been like, because it was still, like, early days for cons, period. I can only imagine what it would be like going into, like, a conference room or, like, auditorium hall and sitting down and being like, ah, they're going to... And then Daikon 3 happens on the screen. Like, that would be... That would set the stage for a very... Intense, exciting weekend, I feel. Mm-hmm. 
Because also... Coop, does uh, Otakon still do the Daikon 3, Daikon 4 showing at the beginning of Otakon? I'm pretty... I'm not sure. I think they do. I know they still show Takino Video. Um, Oh, maybe it's a Takino Video I'm confusing it with. Mm -hmm. They make a point to show a Takino No Video, I think either at the beginning or at the ending or both. I know they do show it. Um, But, yeah, the only... Because when I'm, I'm thinking too, like looking back at uh, cons back in those days, like that's the only thing going on um, during that part of the show. Because cons nowadays, there's other panels and other things going on at the same time as the opening ceremonies. So it's like you have so much more to do, and also there's way more people around um, in comparison to back then with like thinking of the room that those daikon uh shorts were shown in like there there was probably a huddled room of a pretty tight-knit group of people watching those back in the day um not so much the case nowadays i also uh, feel too that for the opening ceremonies like that that serves a better purpose for people who've never been to an anime convention so they can get the full uh, rundown of what's going to be happening for the weekend. And also it, it serves a p- point for the press too, so they can go in and make a note of things and add that to their reporting coverage. Um, just so they could say, Hey, here's what, here's what happened here. And just so they can, and also allows the, the staff to put some more updates out there, which before phones and before smart, like the guidebook app and stuff like that, I think there was a lot more um, practicality and use to the opening ceremony. Nowadays, you just have all your information in the guidebook. You don't even need um, on on the app. You don't even need the program anymore. So I think back in the day, uh, in the Daikon days, opening ceremonies were like this big Hey, there's a bunch of nerds here. We made this thing. It's gonna blow your mind. This weekend's gonna blow your mind. And now today, it's like it's it's kind of like a formality in a lot of ways. I'd have to guess. I, saying this just as a person who's never been that deep in with convention organizing and the like. So two things to um, back before like guidebook apps and everything um a lot of conventions like i know akon was really big about this they would take over the uh closed circuit tv of the hotels that were hosting them Mm -hmm. and play the opening ceremonies and stuff on there sometimes more than once kind of like as an update they'd use like uh not really teletext because teletext has never really been a thing over here but also like intersperse like updates and have like a ticker thing and that was really cool i missed that also to the way that you had described the daikon uh three screening room like i had never really like thought like i thought a little bit about it but it really like put into perspective i guess like the overall the opening ceremonies for a lot of these older conventions it was like a group of friends coming together Mm -hmm. hey so more of like a speech thing. It is very much more of a formality these days. Mm-hmm. I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like Coop said, I'm almost I'm almost never even at the convention when uh, this thing's going on. 
I've been to a few opening ceremonies at PAX East, which usually happens on the first day. It's the first thing that happens on the first day, and they usually have a big guest speaker. Last PAX I went to, I think Alana Pierce gave the presentation. She is currently writing. She wrote the recent God of War game. She was in games media before that. She did a great job, and previous guest speakers did a good job. But, of course, PAX East has a certain pull that anime conventions don't have. That's the equivalent of getting, mm-hmm. like, Anno giving the keynote uh, presentation at your convention. Of course, people mm-hmm. are going to show up for it. Mm-hmm. However, they needed help. Fortunately, Okada knew a guy, or more accurately... He knew a guy, Nagayama, who knew a guy. Nagayama, whom Okada met at a screening of Ultra Q, a 60s kaiju show, swam in similar circles and knew some talented folks. One day, he invited Takeda to Solaris, or Solaris, a sci-fi cafe in Kyoto, to meet Hiroyuki Yamaga and Hideaki Anno, two friends of his. Just as a reference point, Ano and Yamaga met in April of 1980 in their freshman year of college at the Osaka University of Arts. This meeting happened the following September, and by that point, Ano, Yamaga, and Akai were all living in the same apartment. I should also point out that in Japan, the academic year starts in April and ends in March the following year. After reading through enough of these interviews, I just had to look it up because it was kind of throwing off my, my timeline. Also, these accounts from a bunch of people in their 30s and 40s thinking back to their college days differ dramatically. There's a lot of inconsistencies which make sense, so I had to like do some inferencing and stitch some things together. So hopefully it says honest to the, honest to the historical record as possible. Takeda sums up this meaning well. Quote, I had very little interest in anime back then, so I wasn't expecting anything spectacular. When I was introduced to Ano, I said something like, They say you can make anime. What kind of stuff can you do? At this, he whipped out a pad of accounting paper and started drawing. After a bit, he held the pad up and flipped the pages rapidly. A powered suit ran across the paper. End quote. This meeting is played up in an exaggerated fashion in blue blazes. Takeda, who's wearing a cowboy hat for some reason and a black coat, sits across the table from Ano and Yamaga. Of course, Anno's laconic and aloof, inadvertently doing his best Gendo Akari impression. We dedicated an entire episode to Blue Blazes. It released the week before this episode. Listen to it if you haven't. But it's worth mentioning again. Blue Blazes is a still-ongoing manga by Kazuhiko Shimamoto that began serialization in 2007. It's a coming-of-age story chronicling the creation of the Daikon 3 opening animation among a lot of other things. Shimamoto was a student at the Osaka University of Arts in the early 80s, and his manga imagines a reality in which Moyuru Hono, his fictional stand-in, interacted with and competed against Ano, Yamaga, Akai, and others. It was later adapted for television in 2014 in a live-action series. To be fair to Shimamoto, he was friends with Ano, Yamaga, and Akai in college, However, unlike most of the folks in this episode, he would not go on to found Gynax, nor was he ever a Gynax employee, at least not on a full-time basis. His path took him in another direction, that of a successful mangaka. However, he remained close with his college pals. They all stayed in touch. In fact, Gynax would adapt Hono no Tenkose, Shimamoto's breakout shonen series, into a two-episode OVA in 1991. 
Coop, you have some experience with this OVA, no? Mm-hmm. I saw a while back. Um, it's also known as Blazing Transfer Student. And I do want to point out here, hey, there's some DNA with this OVA that's that ties back into Gynax uh, and kind of all these people. Because in my brain, I think of this generation of, personally, uh, of people who worked in the industry as the Earth Yatsura generation because they worked all worked on it to a degree, though it's a little bit wider than just one show. But when it comes to Blazing Transfer Student... Uh, a person, a couple people who worked a lot with the Gynax crew, and you'll see their names pop up on Gynax Productions and other stuff here and there, even in this little Gunbuster show, uh, are Kazuhika, excuse me, Kazuhiko Nishijima and Yuji Moriyama, and also uh, Nishijima's studio, Studio Fantasia. Uh, remember those. Um, again, those folks worked with um, what would be the Gynax crew on projects like Macross or Isayatsura, Project Echo, and later Gunbuster. Um, when it comes to Blazing Transfer Student, it was uh, reuniting um, Nisijima and Moriyama together for a project years after Project Echo. Um, so just to keep that in mind. So keep keep those names and Studio Fantasia in mind as we continue talking here, because they'll come up again in this episode and then in our second part of history for sure. But let's return to 1981. It's important to note that Takeda, Hell or High Water, wanted the Daikon opening film to be animated. No live action for him. To make that happen, he needed a bit more help. Enter Takami Akai, another Osaka University of Arts student. According to Takeda, Akai wasn't especially enthusiastic about joining the team, but thought he might get paid, which he valued over studying. I can certainly relate to that. <laughs> Sidebar here, Takami Akai is an important figure in Gainax's history. One of the studio's most talented illustrators, he would go on to create Princess Maker, an early life sim video game that was a huge, and I mean huge, success. Its breakout popularity arguably saved the company in the early 90s when bankruptcy was a very real possibility. Um, Akai then, in, later in the 90s, left Gainax, returned to Gainax in the early 2000s, was unceremoniously kicked out because of an incident during like the early run of Gurren Lagann. Maybe we'll get to that in a future episode. Um, I don't know what he's doing now. I think he's just managing the Princess uh, Maker brand, probably milking it for all it's worth. No judgment there, Akai. I understand. Yeah, that brand, like <laughs> it was never really that big over here, but it was big enough, I guess, like, I, I guess had the fan cloud... All those games are on Steam in English now. Yeah, I picked up a few. Uh, the translation's a little rough, but they're more than serviceable. Mm-hmm. To learn more I, about Akai... Oh, go on. Goop. I was going to say, I think there are those, some of those Princess Makers are on Switch, too, with the translations, if I remember correctly. They are. I think the most mm-hmm. recent one, 5, came out in the like 2005-ish time period. Gotcha. Maybe a little later. To learn more about Akai, listen to our simulator episode on Zardion. We do a whole deep dive into Gynax history and Gynax's relationship. Uh, I guess Gynax's role as a video game consultant company and a video game developer. All right, so they got the the, pe- the chess pieces are on the board here, and the team dove headfirst into work. 
However, even though the talent had been brought together, there were still hurdles to overcome, the most pressing of which was that Anno had never worked with cells before. I'm not an animation scholar, so when I ask you all this question, it's not coming from a position of absolute knowledge. But do we all know what cells are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, like, a general, like, I couldn't explain them very scientifically, but I've got a general idea. Uh, cell collecting is something that I've always been fascinated by, and it's one of those aspects of, like, things that I'm a fan of that I will not allow myself to touch because I know I'll go crazy and spend too much money on like cell collecting and arcade boards i yep to even even think about going down those rabbit holes just 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 stop at laser discs and blu-rays rex just stop there yeah stop there stop there. I, i'm glad you brought that up rex like every so often I, I think you know what i should get a candy cab and start like picking up all those like cave shmup arcade boards for a ridiculous amount of money if i wanted to bankrupt myself and my family no, one day I definitely do want to get a candy cab. Like I've gotten so far in that quest to like actually be like I, I've sourced where I could get one down here like pretty easily. Um, but you're, I don't. You're think closer I would... to the West Coast. They're all when I look at uh, into it, they're all mm-hmm. in California, and I'm not going to spend eight hundred dollars to ship it over to Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all in California, and there's a place actually not too far from where I lived in Central Texas that also distributes uh, arcade games, so I could get it shipped from California to there. It'd be a couple thousand dollars, and then the boards would be more expensive, but I was thinking uh, one day getting a cab and just putting in, like, a mister mm. or something mm. like that, so I wouldn't have to mess with boards. But that would be, like, five or six years down the line. Mm-hmm. So. There, there was a while there when I was living in Arizona, like, this was, like, a year before the pandemic hit, um, and I found out on Craigslist, there was a guy living around the corner from my, uh, where my parents were living at the time. And he was selling a Neo Geo cabinet, four slots for $400. And I was so, so tempted, but the game I want is wind jammers. And that's expensive. Cause I'd probably load that up with wind jammers, a king of fighters and a metal slug or two. Yeah. Now, to return to cells real quick, just in case you are unaware of what it is, uh, cell, as an abbreviated term, is short for celluloid, and it's a transparent sheet on which objects are drawn or painted. Uh, Animators can overlap cells to create depth of field and vivid foreground and background shots. Um, It's the foundation of traditional animation, traditional hand-drawn animation. And you can buy a bunch of them at anime cons. Usually the good ones have been scooped up years ago, so they're going for very high prices. Um, but all you know, if you have a favorite show from the 90s or, uh, or earlier, there's going to be cells attached to it. It was made with cells. Because a lot of if those cells... Of... Oh, go ahead, Rex. I was just say, if you're a fan of uh, off-model animation, those cells are so plentiful and not very expensive. <laughs> yes. Because there's... Speaking to that nature of off-model cells as well. Like, they made so many of them, because I remember uh, doing research for a couple different pieces, whether it was talking with the Animego folks or doing some stuff for the Macross piece I did on Zimmerit. Like, they just, when animation companies were done with these cells, they just had, like, boatloads of them. And there's a certain way you have to throw them out because of the chemicals are used. 
Um, I remember reading a story. I think it was the Animago crew got a shit ton of cells, and they just had to like literally shove them out the window into a dumpster from their Japan office because they couldn't take them anywhere. Like there was just so much. Because once it's used, it's not really nobody's going to use it and refilm all that stuff again. That's not that's not going to happen. <laughs> Anno's inexperience with industry practices was an early indication that this was going to be a learning experience for everyone. To secure materials for production, the team went to Anime Polis Pero, a local hobby store, but were discouraged by the hefty price tags. Simply put, cells weren't cheap, so they had to get creative. Instead, they acquired one cell and a roll of vinyl sheets. While vinyl is cheaper, it's also of a lesser quality, and thus more difficult to work with. But the team made do. They worked in an empty room in Okada's family's house, which doubled as a factory for Okada embroidering the family business. Neglecting their studies, Ano, Akai, and Yamaga worked full-time on the project. Their roles remained fluid throughout. They all helped out where they could. However, if I were to assign titles, the responsibilities would roughly break down as follows. Okada, producer. Yamaga, director. Akai, character animator. Ano, mechanical designer. Usually it's only Yamaga, Akai, and Ano who are credited, like they're the Daikon 3 trio. Okada's around, though. I mean, it's, it's his family's place, so I'm sure he helped out with some labor here and there. But in my mind, when I think of, of who made Daikon 3, it's the four of them. In April 1981, they began work on the line art and by June were painting cells. Never ahead of schedule, the team feverishly worked right up until the morning of the convention. But they finished. And by all accounts, the fruit of their labor was incredibly well received. As cliche as this may sound, the approximately five and a half minute long opening was a love letter to fandom. Starring a young girl who meets up with these aliens who give her some water. Um, she wants to use that water to water her radish, which then turns into a spaceship. Uh, radish, daikon, think about the connection. While she's doing this, while she has the water and is, in, is trying to water her radish, she's chased by a who's who of popular culture whom she must battle. Replete with references to Godzilla, Gundam, Star Wars, Star Trek... Yamato, etc. It has a little of something for everyone. It's weird to ask you, like, what are your thoughts on Daikon Three? Because it's like such a, it's such like a, it's like a, such a thing that just in the back of your mind you you think about it without even realizing. It's like a, if you've seen it and you're knowledgeable about anime and anime history, it's like a part of your foundational knowledge of the genre. So it's it's weird to try to like have a take on Daikon Three. Oh man, I, I have a lot of Daikon three and four opinions in general. Um, first of all, the way that I like you just described it and how it's laid out in the notes and everything. Um, going back to uh, my association with uh, Gainax and Punk and everything, the creation of these shorts is almost indistinguishable from all of the books I've read about bands like Black Flag and the Minutemen and the butthole surfers and stuff like they the creation process of all of these things is pretty much exactly the same thing they're just making different products and uh 
I keep thinking about how it must have felt to be in that room getting ready for this convention that you've been looking forward to for a while and watching like the whole event kicks off with a very impressive animation that your friends made in one of like someone's family house like that it it's so mm-hmm. cool like the animation itself like when i first got into the anime fandom like i mentioned earlier uh there's a lot of new type usa there's a lot of uh anime news network forums too i used a lot i kind of had daikon three and four built up by older fans Mm -hmm. is like oh you have to see this this is like a holy grail of animation and when i did finally watch them it was in high school i think i got them off a file sharing service or something i was kind of like oh that's it like Mm -hmm. it's very well done for what it is but also, too, something I've been thinking a lot, because I rewatched the shorts for the first time in a long time yesterday while prepping for the episode. I was thinking about how, like, the expectations of fandoms have changed a lot over the years, and what was very impressive to, uh, like, super old heads in the 80s and 90s aren't quite as impressive now. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of, like, I remember... Daikon 3 and 4 being sold to me by people who were uh, much older than me at the time is like, oh, it's so cool, there's all of these references. But as fandom and just in general consumption of media, I guess, has progressed over the years, I don't want to say ref- just making references is a lazy thing to do, but since everybody's so connected because of the internet at this point, it's not as exciting to, uh, I guess, like, we don't need that, oh, hey, that person knows this thing, that person knows this thing, that person knows this thing, whereas in the 90s, it was different because you didn't know a whole lot of people that, Mm -hmm. well, you're less likely to know, like, people that knew the thing, so it was just kind of like, yes, I've been seen, whereas Mm -hmm. now it's not as exciting of a thing. But that being said, the the references, while they were a point of the shorts, they were also, we have to like keep in mind, they were they were opening ceremonies in animation form. So it made a lot of sense to for them to advertise, hey, here's all the cool like things we'll be talking about and immersing ourselves in through the weekend. So in that aspect, yeah, they they serve their purpose well and they're very cool. I'm there with you, Rex, because it's very much a tone setter for the weekend, more than anything. Um, It's like, hey, we're going to talk about Godzilla, we're going to talk about Starship Troopers, you know, that Yamato show, that that Yamato show rocks, let's talk about that. Let's talk about uh, wave cannons for like an afternoon. Yeah, it's it's uh, it just again for a small, smallish what we consider today to be a small group of people huddled in a room for the start of this convention. It would be mind blowing today, not as today. It's quaint. It's quaint, but at the same time, um, I, I think it's still a fun little um, 
trying to remove myself from that other stuff. I think it's a fun little short animation um, of just like, hey, this little girl's got to water this daikon radish, and there's a bunch of crazy stuff that goes on. Um, and the Gundam turns in, into Edeon, and a, a bunch of wacky stuff that's that's fun and enjoyable. Yeah, it's a little rough around the edges, but I I, I think it's still a fun little short. <laughs> I like to imagine them sitting around like while they're making it and everything, and just like tossing out, "Hey, we should put this in. Hey, we should put this in. Hey, we should put this in." Like a lot of love went into it. And you know, now that I think about it too. That might be why they had a little bit of a... Because, again, everybody working on this was very much greenhorns. So maybe that idea, we gotta put this in, this in, and then they look at the look at the clock. Dude, we have to have this ready. We have to have this all photographed in an hour. Like, um... Like, stuff like that. You know? Because that, that's... Those are things that also happen in this little show called Macross, because it, most of the people working on it were greenhorns. But we'll get to that. <laughs> You two brought up the fact that we are inundated with this sort of referencing in popular culture in 2023. Like, this is mainstream, uh, kind of, now, just because everyone's always referencing all the shows they've watched. Or if you're watching a show, it's constantly in conversation in the lamest way possible with uh, other shows that fall under its umbrella or take place mm-hmm. in the same universe. I'm subtweeting Star Wars here, of course. Um, but back like back then, this wasn't the norm. I saw a great tweet about Last Crusade. The opening of Last Crusade is incredibly self-referential. You know, it's when Indy finds gets the rope for the first time when he puts on the hat for the first time. It rules, but it was that's because no one was doing that shit back in the mm-hmm. uh, the late eighties. Excuse me, the early nineties, the late eighties, nineteen eighty nine. But if Last Crusade came, if Last Crusade was Indy five and was pulling that shit. Um, in mm. 2023, it would be obnoxious. It would be yeah. your least favorite episode of Mandalorian. Now, back then, though, stuff ruled. Mm. Yeah, a good recent example of that, I feel, would be Evil Dead Rise, which is mm. a movie that I liked a lot, but it barely has, other than the basic like setup, barely has anything to do with the earlier Evil Dead movies. And in Pretty much everyone I've talked to, I'm one of the few people that I know personally who actually enjoyed the movie. Um, everyone I've talked to, though, agreed that uh, it would have been a lot stronger if they hadn't tied it into Evil Dead. Um, most of my friends that watched it did not enjoy it because it didn't have the hallmark things that you'd expect from an Evil Dead movie, namely the humor. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like that they tried to shoehorn other things besides the actual setup and like they made references to like various little like gags strewn throughout the other movies that just didn't need to be there except for like, haha, I remember that. Because I, I think in today's, when it comes to today's media, there's kind of a fear to let things just be themselves when they're part of a long-running franchise, like, they gotta go, you gotta remember that. And it's, again, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, how the word otaku has evolved over time, because it's kind of like the, the insertion of references over time has gone from this little cute thing you'd see on occasion, oh, that's a cute touch. Um, like, I especially like hunting that out in old anime, because then it was a cute touch. It was just the animators doing a goof. Uh, but now it's like, 
well, we got to reference X, Y, and Z and all that. Um, hopefully I'm going to go see Spider-Verse after this and I'm looking forward to it, but that's also like a perfect movie to look at when we're talking about references on references that may be one of the few movies that might do it right. But it also goes to how, Hey, uh, we're, we're pretty soaked in references nowadays. And it's even worse. Cause I have my little phone that has references. Hey, look, there's a bubblegum crisis reference even on it. Like there's references everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> PMC, before I jump into my spiel, do you have any hot Daikon three takes? No, I think y'all have pretty much covered the uh, the extent of it. I, it's definitely the definitely important to think about the context is was what I would say. And the other thing too is just to add one more bit to uh, you know Stephen your point that when when Star Wars does it now, you kind of roll your eyes. The other thing too here is you remember this is a, a fan work as opposed to someone who owns the rights mm-hmm. to everything that appears in Diecon Three. And that's like a that's a pretty important difference, um, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 that kind of thing still exists today. Usually, you have to be a little cuter about it, um, which is to say, for example, like GDQ is constantly making use of Nintendo stuff and other things to sort of you know put their image together as you know as as fans. And I think you know it's, that that thing is still much more palatable than you know we're at Daikon 3 a film where they said well now we own all these things and they're all connected so you have to consume all of them that that is Mm -hmm. a good distinction to make yeah I'm going to echo all your thoughts like I said at the beginning it feels weird to qualitatively try to judge Daikon 3 if like it almost feels wrong based on like Mm -hmm. what it is it was a labor of love as PMC pointed out by a group of college students animation the animation is good I want to say that the animation is good it's surprisingly fluid but also it's also at times stiff the characters are off model which honestly they should be it makes it more charming the cells are marked with blemishes which also makes it more charming um it used to be a rite of passage for young anime fans to watch daikon 3 almost like an initiation oh you like ava well you got to watch this daikon 3 does not serve that purpose anymore D- to be honest ava probably serves that purpose oh mm-hmm. you like which from Mercury, here's Evangelion or something like that. I don't think it's the most engaging short there is. Like, I don't recreationally go back and watch Daikon 3. It's fun to identify the very obvious references. Um, but I don't go back to it in the same way I don't go back to seek out the unpublished early work of my favorite authors. Unless I'm doing research, then I go back to it. If I'm going back for research uh, anime stuff, I go back to Daikon 3. I don't think this diminishes its importance, though. The Daikon 3 opening animation is an, is an artifact at this point. It, it crystallizes and preserves a unique and fleeting moment in time. It's fascinating to study in hindsight once you know the creatives involved. It, a, it should be restored. B, it should be, at this point, restored by fans. We'll talk about that later. Um, but it definitely belongs in a museum. It's, 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 it's interesting you mentioned Eva, Stephen, because it's been... A degree of perennial, I know I messed up the word, but perennially popular. Um, But I also think in my mind, it's also like Daikon 3, there's a level of like academic academics to it 
um, kind of like with Gundam, first Gundam specifically. Like, there's, I, I just feel like there's more academic bent to it. Like, everybody's gonna, I think people are gonna keep watching Ava and obviously Gundam for years to come. But it's, it's kind of hard to, uh, with some of those shows, admittedly, it's kind of hard for some folks to go back to it without, uh, looking specifically at the academic lens, uh, as we're teach as we're looking at Daikon 3 with. Notably, Osamu Tezuka, of Astro Boy fame, attended Daikon 3. While he didn't make it in time for the opening ceremony, see, it happens to everyone. If you're Tezuka or Steven Hero, you just don't make it to the opening ceremony. It happens. <laughs> Tezuka did attend an after party which Yamaga and Akai were at. He asked to see the fruit of their labor. Nervously, they showed him the film, and he was impressed. After watching the sequence, according to Takeda, who was not at the party, Tezuka said, quote, Well, there certainly were a lot of characters in the film. A lot of characters. However, there were also some that weren't in the film. End quote. Awkwardly, they didn't know what he was referring to until it dawned on them that Tezuka meant that they didn't include any of his characters. They would make sure not to make that mistake twice. I'm currently going through Blue Blazes right now, and in Blue Blazes, Tezuka is played by Okada. Um, Amazing. <laughs> who you can tell is having an absolute blast. Born to play that role. Now, to recoup production costs, they sold 8mm reels of the opening film to fans at the convention, at Daikon 3. Financially, this proved to be a smart move. The reels were so popular that they generated enough revenue to not only pull them out of debt, but even net a nice prop for themselves. In fact, some fans consider the physical release of Daikon 3 to be the first OVA predating Mamoru Oshii's Dallas by two years. All right, there, there's a certain type of fan who loves to trot this fact out in a very um-actually sort of way. Rex, what's your take on this? Is Daikon 3 the first OVA? So it is an extremely um-actually take that I don't entirely agree with. I feel like what distinguishes OVAs from everything else and I I'm one of those people I get weird I guess about like categorizing things because especially when it comes to like genres and stuff because I don't like putting things in boxes but I do understand that a lot of people need to have things like neatly put in boxes it was more widely available I guess on the 8mm real format but when I think of OVAs, I think of stuff that was directly made for the home video market, and Daikon 3 was not made for the home video market. It was made for the opening ceremonies of this convention. So I would counteract that take with that. It was made for is an intro to a convention. It wasn't made for home video consumption. The home video was a nice little extra thing that they did to make more money. Mm. Yeah, I fall in line with that take. Not to diminish from the, the neatness that is buying a copy of Daikon 3 at the show floor of Daikon. Yeah, like that would have... It's such a cool like thing. Like, oh... We made this very cool opening animation for the con. Also, you can take it home with you on eight millimeter. Like, mm. that's so good. That's I like how much those the, are going for. Well, probably a lot. Um, 
that's that's kind of like getting the con shirt, but it's like way more than just a shirt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good way to phrase it. By all metrics, the Daikon 3 opening animation was a success. It garnered the team money, praise, and perhaps most importantly, attention. However, the pressures of real life were finally starting to close in around them. They were floundering in their academics. In Takeda's case, if he wanted to continue with his studies, he would have to repeat his sophomore year. Again. His professors told him that he probably wouldn't be able to graduate. The same was true of his colleagues. School wasn't on any of their minds. So, Takeda dropped out. Okada, on the other hand, was a bit more inspired after Daikon 3. Spurred by the success of the dealer's room, he got the idea to open a sci-fi shop, and he asked Takeda to help him out. With little in the way of prospects, professional or otherwise, Takeda reluctantly came on board. They decided to name the store General Products, a nod to the intergalactic trading company of the same name in Larry Niven's Ringworld. I wrote this with the full intention of asking PMC, any Larry Niven fans in the house? PMC? <laughs> uh, maybe. <clears throat> I mean, I've, so I have read I have read Ringworld. It is a classic 1970s, I think it's 1970s sci-fi for both better and worse. It has some of the really cool stuff, you know, the, the, the ring world structure itself, which is you new know, inspiration for many things. Halo, for example, the, you know, the ring worlds in Halo. Very cool setting. It also has like the worst parts of 70s sci-fi where like the, 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 the lead woman character in the book turns out to have been like bred for luck. She's like genetically lucky and it's, it's very, very bad. <laughs> So, uh, you know, it is what it is. It's let me tell you this: you can have fun reading it, unlike *Stranger in a Strange Land* by Robert Heinlein, a book that I will never <laughs> not be mad about reading. Yeah, I only know like seventy sci-fi through reputation uh, and vibes, but I get those impressions from an outside perspective. I remember I was reading. I was, I think I was, was when I was in Japan. I had a book by Michael Swanwick, who's an author I like. And in, in the early '90s, he wrote a book called Stations of the Tide, which is it feels very '70s sci-fi, and the the sexism was just too much, and it wasn't being subverted in any way. And I just couldn't finish the book. So I get those vibes. Now, interestingly enough. Larry Niven actually reached out to them to wish them luck with their venture. This was a like an excerpt in a magazine, like a General Products uh, made magazine. That I'm sure they gave away at General Products. What probably happened is they reached out to Niven, and then Niven responded. But he wrote, 
Best wishes to you in your venture. The science fiction speciality specialty shops do very well in the United States, and I hope you will have the same success in Japan. Larry Niven. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. Even though they recouped their Daikon 3 losses, neither Okada or Takeda had the capital necessary to start a small business. Fortunately, Okada's family helped foot the bill, and so doing, made General Products a subsidiary of Okada Embroidering. They immediately got to work and spent the next several months inking licensing deals, commissioning illustrations, producing merchandise, and of course, securing real estate. After all these preparations were complete, General Products, with the requisite pomp and circumstance, opened on Valentine's Day in 1982. Sean O'Mara published an article on Zimmerit, which provides more background on the event, which I urge you to read. Suffice it to say, the opening of General Products was a success, and business remained steady for months. Meanwhile, doors were opening for the rest of the Daikon 3 crew. Members of Studio Nui saw and were impressed by the Daikon 3 opening. So much so that they invited the team to work on Super Dimensional Fortress Macross, which was being co-produced with Artland, an animation studio. This was it. This was their big break. No longer would they toil in obscurity as amateur artists. They had gone pro. Like so many young people before and after them, Ano, Yamaga, and Akai packed their bags and moved to Tokyo. This opportunity proved to be a formative experience for two-thirds of the trio. Ano honed his skills as an animator and mechanical designer, working under Ichiro Atano, whom he refers to as one of his masters, a.k.a. Senpai. Funny enough, even though he was now working in a professional capacity, Ano still behaved like he was in the dorms. According to his peers, Ano, quote, walked around this studio in bare feet and regularly talked so loudly to himself that he could be heard across the room, end quote. To be fair, and we'll talk more about this later, Ano was living in the studio. And when he wasn't at the studio, he was couch surfing at Atano's place. The pay, as Ano remembers, was low. Just 1,800 yen per cut, which was not enough for rent, then or now. While Ano was sharpening his illustrative talents, Yamago was learning the directorial ropes from Noboro Ishiguro, an industry legend best known for space, space battleship Yamato, Macross, and later, Legend of the Galactic Heroes. One of Yamago's first jobs was designing the storyboards for the opening credits. This montage, as Carl Horn points out, features a carrier takeoff remarkably similar to the opening of Royal Space Force, Gainax's inaugural project. Akai, on the other hand, felt that he wasn't really putting his talents to use at Artland. The Macross team already had a character designer, Haruyuki Mikimoto, so Akai Akai returned early to Osaka. But even with just Ano and Yamaga, the two left their mark. For example, episode 27, Love Drifts Away, which, as Sean pointed out in a Twitter thread, features a ton of references to Gainax lore. Astute viewers will be able to pick out a general product sign, multiple Daikon 4 Easter eggs, and even Ano's signature. Ryusuke Hikawa, a Japanese animation critic, also credits this episode with having the first Ano cut 
highlighting a laser beam blast that vaporizes a city block, culminating in a devastating explosion. Akawa refers to Ano's live-action sensibilities and concern for visual verisimilitude, evident in the extremely detailed mechanical shots that proliferate his works. Simply put, no one can animate doohickeys or explosions quite like Ano. He has it down to a science. Now, Coop, as the resident Macross fan and expert, I want to give you a chance to jump in here. I also know you're a big Ano fan. Like, I might be exaggerating here, but I'm trying to tease out a, like, a great response. Like, Can you feel his presence in the original Macross? Do you have any fun production factoids to drop on us? I, I would say when it comes to Ano and Macross, I feel like he is a pitch hitter in the big moments. Um, I remember when we were speaking with Adrian Lozano and Gwyn Campbell uh, over a year ago now, pretty much, uh, they were talking about how they had just been at the Haiti Akiano exhibition and like all the big scenes, like the shots you remember from Macross, that was all Ano. So, um, I think I think he's used to great effect with punctuating things here and there, but on the whole, I think Anno is just another one of the Greenhorns uh, trying to get this anime out because, uh, boy, I, I've mentioned it roughly, the production of the original Macross series was was rough, was like incredibly rough. I have a piece on all over on Zimmerit about that. Where Ishiguro, um, he did a uh, for the Animego DVD box set, which is great if you can find it, of uh, Macross. He had an interview talking about his experiences working on that. I looked at some other interviews and kind of extrapolated on that from there. And also got the chance to talk with some people um, who know him, like uh, Renato Rivera and uh, some of the folks who spoke with him over at Animego. Um, but the 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 impression Anno I got Anno was another one of those greenhorns who was putting too much time and too much effort. Like he talks about because um, we talk about missing deadlines um, and the like, especially with Daikon Three, how they were working just up to the very end. Hey, Atano worked just like that as well, and Atano is who pretty much brought um, Anno onto the production. And uh, Itano, like for instance, he 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 worked himself to the bone and would, was notorious for after Ishiguro said, "Hey, these cuts are good. Move on to the next thing. We got to get this shit done." Um, he'd run off with the cells to to go with the drawings. Excuse me, to just go even further with them, and then the studio would be in a scramble for like two to three days. Like, where the hell is Itano? And then Itano <laughs> shows up just before um, they're about to photograph it with all the finished stuff, and they're and they're like, "Stop, Itano, Itano!" And then episode eleven happens, and then they they get things back in order and start running the production a bit better. Um, but also around that time too, uh, there was also a really good bit about how Itano Itano got sick um, in a uh, meth in a way not too dissimilar from how Yas did while uh, near the end of Mobile Suit Gundam. And but instead of being like, "Hey, um, I should take it easy and rest," he's like, "Well, I'm going to go in a motorcycle race while I'm definitely ill because that's just Itano." Um, but yeah, the Macross production was, uh, I, 
it's very emblematic of a bunch of greenhorns uh, coming together and getting their feet wet and learning how to work in this industry. And that, that caused a lot of setbacks, but they learned a lot and made something great while doing it. Um, for instance, uh, a big thing of why there were so many greenhorns, um, and uh, Ishiguro talks about this, is that once you had Mikimoto and uh, Haruhiko, excuse me, Haruhiko Mikimoto and um, Shoji Kawamori on board, all the veteran animators at uh, Artland and their associated people working with them were like, why are these kids here? We're, 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 nah, we're out of here, dude. And so as a result, they brought in a bunch of hungry animators like Ano and Co. to get this done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, that the industry was a machine that spit out so many young animators at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, by all accounts, production on the original Macross was grueling, even by the suboptimal standards of the industry. It was a war of attrition. Artland was burning through staff. Yamaga, who was tasked with directing episode 9, Miss Macross, shoutouts to Sheena, knew this and did his part. He brought Mahiro Maida, a student at the Tokyo University of Art and Design, who had gone to school with the Kai, on to the project. Maida asked his classmate and collaborator, Yoshiyuki Sadamoto, who he'd like, if he'd like to join the pro- production. This is how Maida and Sadamoto, who would become industry titans, entered Gainax's orbit. I should say, they all have a different um, story of how this came to be. Um, Maida's recollections differ slightly from Takeda's recollections, which differ slightly from Satomoto's recollections. So I tried to um, thread that needle as best I could. Because mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to even Macross production stuff, like thank God I had somebody as knowledgeable as Renato to talk to, to, talk to because there's so many... And when you're talking about the production of that show, there's so many different ways it goes off in. And also you, you kind of think there's also maybe there's things that um, happen in the back back in the day that they don't really want to talk about anymore. Which I understand because if you're working on a project that that hectic, there's going to be tensions that flare up on occasion. Now we'll talk more about Maida and Satomoto in turn when the time comes. Long story short, they both worked on Gunbuster and helped transform Gainax into the powerhouse that it would become. To give you a little preview of the future, Maida was a key animator on a bunch of Ghibli films and the production IG animated sequences of the first Kill Bill. Satomoto is probably best known for, other than saying some really unfortunate stuff on social media a few years back, for the manga adaptation of Evangelion, which ran until 2013. It was Damn. it was ongoing forever, and there are long breaks in between the volumes. It's also got some very wild, uh, wild changes from the source material. <laughs> Once we get around to covering Ava, I'm super looking forward to actually sitting down and reading all of uh, Satomoto's Evangelion manga. Yeah, it gets weird. I haven't finished it, but it gets weird. (laughs) The vision's 
Yano and Yamago were busy working on Macross in Tokyo. Big things were happening back home. After moving to Tokyo for the 82 convention, the Japan, uh, by the 82 convention, I mean the convention that took place in 1982, not the 82nd iteration of the convention. We haven't got to that point yet. <laughs> 20 more years, maybe. Uh, the, uh, that year, the Japan Science Fiction Convention was set to return to Osaka in 1983. And Takeda had begun thinking about how to follow up and top Daikon 3. Now blessed with experience and a degree of hindsight, Takeda and the team got to work early. Daikon 4 was scheduled to take place on August 20th and August 21st uh, in 1983. In the spring of the previous year, approximately a year and a half before the event, they rented an office and set up an executive committee responsible for the copious amounts of prep work that an event of this scale requires. To do this, they established Daikon Film, an independent film production group, as a way to train the Daikon 4 staff. General Products, which had by now opened, was attracting a multitude of like-minded enthusiasts. In effect, the store is becoming a sort of countercultural hub, a place where otaku would meet and hang out, and sometimes crash. As Takeda remembers, the store functioned both as a hangout for Daikon 3 veterans and as a place to find potential recruits. But this growing group of misfits needed guidance and purpose. That's where Daikon Film comes in as a sort of team-building exercise. Takeda sums it up well. Quote, making a film is itself a kind of event. The idea is to create a production process where you and the staff grow and learn to work as a team. We thought that something like producing a film, a worthwhile activity in and of itself, would be the perfect way to build a workable chain of command and also keep the staff motivated for an event that wouldn't happen for another two years. End quote. And these guys were ready to work. If I'm allowed just one more Star Wars comparison, the Daikon film crew were a lot like the folks at Industrial Light and Magic, the visionaries, the young visionaries responsible for the special effects of the original trilogy. Working out of a warehouse in Van New, California, this group of artists and engineers, many of whom were still in college, handcrafted all the miniature spaceships, you know, all the X-Wings, TIE Fighters, the Falcon, and made sure the action tracked on screen. Likewise, the Daikon film crew, just as inexperienced, applied themselves to the task of creating imaginary worlds. Their first film was Kaiketsu no Tenki, a parody of Kaiketsu Zubat, a tokusatsu show from the late 70s about a private eye avenging his best friend's murder. According to Takeda, Okada was a huge Zubat fan, and it was his idea to do the parody. Takeda was chosen to play the lead on the basis of the film's name. Notenki roughly translates to carefree, and Takeda, apparently, had the most congenial face, so the choice was easy. This is where the title of Takeda's autobiography, The Notenki Memoirs, comes from. Kaiketsu Notenki was intended as a starter project, something easy to get the team's feet wet, Clocking in at under 12 minutes, their debut project was shot on videotape as opposed to film due to the accessibility of the format. Takami Akai, back in Osaka after his his brief stint at Artland, directed the short. Over time, four Notenki shorts would be made, each one starring Takeda. Apparently, 
he still has the costume. <laughs> Daikon Film followed Notenki up with a project on a much larger scale. Aikoku Sentai Dai Nippon. As the name suggests, Dai Nippon was a parody of Sentai shows. Coop, do you have some info on this? Yes. Yeah, so speaking very much on the parody part of it, um, I noticed while watching through the short, the very open, the opening scene, the opening song is literally just the karaoke track of, uh, I think one of the first Sentai series, Sun Vulcan. It's just that song, the karaoke track with completely different lyrics. And I'm like, okay, okay. I know what I'm getting into. Um, if, if anybody's interested in a more recent show, the, hey, it's kind of also been featured on Mecha Day once. Um, that kind of goes into similar parody ground. I think y'all listen to this with Dig. Um, unofficial Sentai Akiba Ranger is a very good uh, otaku subculture uh, uh, Sentai parody that I think y'all should check out. It's, it's a fun one. Yeah, I want to second that. I really like Akiba Ranger. I haven't watched yeah. it since it came out, but I really, really enjoyed that show. Mm-hmm. Now, according to Takeda, Dai Nippon was a serious undertaking. Quote, we put a lot of careful consideration into the props, costumes, and casting. End quote. Takami Akai directed this as well. And Ano did some work too. I think he did the mechanical designs, and he shows up at the very end of it. They decided to premiere the this short, which I, I've like seen two different like um, confirmations of runtime. But it's let's let's say it's between 15 minutes and 20 minutes long. They decided to premiere this short at Tokon 8 as a way to promote Daikon 4. While Dai Nippon feels like an amateur production, the team's ambition cannot be denied. Takeda remembers, quote, "What we did was and still is rather illegal." So I'll have to omit the details. (laughs) Suffice it to say, we succeeded in manufacturing our own explosives. And because of that, our little 8mm special effects film turned into something truly amazing. End quote. That's a quote. That's an all-time quote right there. Amazing. Back of the box quote. Awesome. Manufacturing our own explosives. General products branded explosives. Oh, boy. Rex Coop, have either of you seen Dainipone or any of the Notenki shorts? Like, there are VHS rips that exist online. Do you think they're worth a watch? Can you recommend fans to go out and seek them out? Hmm. So, I did, I watched the Notenki shorts, like, forever ago, and I skimmed through them again uh, yesterday while prepping for the episode. I okay, so all of the Daikon film stuff, I like it a lot. It reminds me a lot of uh, a good comparison would be Troma's work mm-hmm. around the same time period. But the both the level and of ambition and quality just eclipses Troma in every way, which is wild to think about considering the Daikon... Like, Troma's already pretty super low budget, and I think the Daikon film stuff had an even lower budget. Um, the Notinki shorts, the, the versions that are available online, and granted, I there were a few other places I could have and should have checked, but didn't. Um, the 
versions that are online are almost unwatchable, I felt, because of how low-res the video mm-hmm. captures are, which is a shame. And, like, I was so bummed out about it, I wound up going to Yahoo Auctions Japan and trying to see, because I know there was a home video release at some point, and I was trying to, like, see if there were any copies of tapes online so I could... Uh, rip them myself and put them out there and I couldn't find, I found a model kit of mm-hmm. no tinky, which I thought was wild as hell. I couldn't <laughs> find like any actual like tapes or laser discs, which bummed me out. So I do recommend them at least like I did not watch Diney Pawn at all, but uh, no tinky. I very cautiously recommend just because parts of them like, the rips that are available online, parts of them are pretty much unwatchable due to how like low res mm-hmm. they are. You can't really tell what's going on. And I did find uh, one of them a slightly higher resolution rip, but the frame rate was super off. It looked like the it, it came off like it was struggling, like there isn't enough CPU to power the video, so it was running at like 10-15 frames a second at parts, which is a mm-hmm. bummer. But, uh, the shorts are good. Like I thought they held up so pretty well. Like I didn't get a lot of the references, but uh, they were fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Is there a mech in the second Notenki short? Like a mecha Notenki? You know, I uh, only skimmed that one. So if there was, I missed it. That came up in my research, but I could not um, <laughs> find a picture of the mysterious mecha Notenki. Maybe it shows up in short three or four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because shorts three and four, that's the other thing. Those aren't even online. Short, short four is basically almost uh, has been excised from existence. I can find barely any information about it. Short three, I found a little bit more stuff on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. if uh, Lost Media people, anybody into that, are uh, listening to this podcast right now, this would be a good thing to try and dredge up. Yes, please. Yes, Actually, Rex, I'm glad you brought up Troma because you can draw an interesting comparison between James Gunn and Anno just based on the trajectory of their mm-hmm. careers. And now they're yeah. critical Marlins in the States and Japan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very high profile directors, especially like it's wild to see like because James Gunn's another one. I've followed him like his entire career pretty much. And yeah, it's wild how similar their trajectory has been mm-hmm. yeah it was kind of like how they uh they worked up to it and then pretty much got the keys to the candy store afterwards like okay you got all these superheroes james gunn go go do something with it because we don't know what to do with them and that's Anno's Anno. <laughs> yeah they have like carte blanche to make whatever kind of like weird shit they want now and mm-hmm. it makes me so happy same same as far as my opinions on the shorts, uh, it's funny you mentioned Troma Rex because the no tank, how the no tanky stuff was shot, reminded me a lot of uh, a lot of, and I say this lovingly, uh, a lot of films that are featured on Best of the Worst, like uh, le- like a lot of the crime films here and there, like there's a lot of that um, that that made me smile. Uh, I do really enjoy um, Notenki himself, uh, 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 Takeda, uh, running around because he's like the the original character uh, Zubot. 
he's going off uh, going off of was played uh by Hiroshi Mayuchi, who's like this big tokusatsu actor. He was Kamen Rider V3. He was also in this. He's popped up a ton over the years, but the guy has such a charisma and swagger to him that I'm like, I see what you're doing. You're 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 putting the swagger up here, and I appreciate you going for it. You're having a fun time. You you are like, I'm no uh, Mayuchi, but I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try my damnedest. It's great. As for Dynapon, I was impressed by the costumes and especially like the, the monster suit and the robot suit for what the kind of production they were doing. It was cool, but still a lot of it had, again, say this lovingly, a best of the worst energy kind of kind of to it. It was very ramshackled and put together. Uh, I, I do really enjoy, too, at the end of those each of those shorts, they showed a little bit of uh, um, making of. And you can see why they were doing Dynapon. Um, and there was just a random shot of Anno doing a Rider 2 henshin pose. Because hmm. he was around and about. I'm like, of course you're doing that. <laughs> like, uh, I, for a second, actually, I was wondering, because there's a gangster guy, like, in the first or second Notenki shirt. And I'm like, with sunglasses, I'm like, is that Anno dressed up like a gangster? I'm not sure, but it looks like a skinny kid with frizzy, frizzy hair. And that's funny if that is him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the credits and production uh, list that exist online feel a little inaccurate. Mm-hmm. It's probably who was ever just around the garage, whatever they filmed out of, uh, whoever was around mm-hmm. that day. As preparations for Daikon 4 intensified into 1983, Ano and Yamaga made the choice to return to Osaka, which meant exiting Macross. According to Okada, Kawamori and Ishiguro were quite angry with them for leaving the project so they could go back to making amateur films again. To be fair, I read this quote, which was from an interview given over a decade later, as spoken more in jest. If there were any tensions, they didn't linger for long. Ano would return to work on both Do You Remember Love and Macross Plus. Not to mention, Itano and other Artland staff members would contribute to the Daikon 4 opening animation. Though, I, I bet you there's probably a degree of Jessica's... Was was that a text interview? Stephen? No, it was, it was an in-person interview at one of the conventions mid-90s. Gotcha. Because I could see there being a bit of jest, jest in it, but also looking to if it was if uh, Ano and Yamaga left after episode 27... Like, that's just about the time where this station uh, told them, hey, we need another 13 episodes, and they weren't planning for it, and they had to mm. scramble to get those ex- the extra arc together. So after that, I could I could, I could reasonably see Kawamori and Shiguro being like, we've been through all this shit, and now we're going to go through this again. Like, I could see it over time being a little bit in jest, but at the same time given that Macross was a hit and also the kind of production it is, I could I could reasonably see those tensions happening. And then maybe after the people saw Daikon, uh, the Daikon 4 short and everything, they're like, okay, what you're doing was worthwhile. This is just all conjecture, but I could actually see how the, the Macross pair would be really pissed. <laughs> yeah, from interviews, I tend to get the sense that Okada shoots from the hip a lot. Also, mm-hmm. it's apparently he knows quite a bit of English. Like, he could speak English, so I'm not sure if this interview was conducted in Japanese or in English. Mm-hmm. 
because that's that's oh sorry because that's the thing we run into with a lot of the sources we're looking at is we're either reading text or we don't really hear the intonation of how they're saying it most of the time because sometimes we don't know exactly what they're saying and that and how we read it vastly differs from what they could have been actually saying so yeah the thing that primarily gets me thinking oh he probably meant it jokingly even though that original anger might be there the thing he left to make they worked on so i feel like he, like mm-hmm. itano contributed and a bunch of other uh new a members contributed to daikon 4 like if they were super mm-hmm. if those bridges were burned six months later they wouldn't be animating this thing in some apartment in osaka true yeah but ano didn't let himself become distracted by the comforts of his hometown upon returning he both directed and starred in kaitakita ultraman the third Daikon film short in this initial batch. Anno had pitched the idea that they make their own Ultraman film, which he envisioned as a parody of the 1971 show. Given his enthusiasm for the project, and Ultraman more generally, Anno was chosen to star in it. The title, Kaitakita, means return, so this is the return of Ultraman. Earlier in his college career, Anno directed two Ultraman shorts for class projects. In the second short, Ultraman leaves Earth to return to space. This is the story of his return. Even though this was still an amateur and quasi-legal production, the Daikon film crew went all out. Takeda remembers that Ultraman was the largest in scale and by far the hardest of the three films to produce. They made bespoke costumes, models, monster suits, and a miniature city. And yes, there were explosions. At just under 28 minutes, it has a longer runtime than the previous two Daikon film shorts. Given the relative lack of experience by any, everyone involved, it was a colossal achievement. Coop, you're a big Ultraman fan. Have you seen this? Thoughts? Yes. Um, so, for years I knew the mythical status of this, especially when I was getting more into the weeds with Anno's work. Um, Mike Dent has a great uh, piece on Zimmer about this and how it connects uh, to Evangelion, which I recommend folks go check out. Um but I hadn't seen it in full until actually yesterday while prepping for this. And wow. Um, it's, 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 sh- it's head and shoulders above the other di- Daikon shorts. Cause I, I feel that Ano and Kuru knew this was kind of like the thing in, in, in where they were very aware of their budget and the kind of effects they had. So they were very choosy with their angles, which it just, it just it works so well with the cinematography and how they format it. It it looks way less parody. Uh, how can I? There's there's there because and while you're reading, it, I kind of think of it's kind of and again, this is all saying this lovingly. This is like the evolution of Mega sixty four videos in a way, like from their earliest stuff where they're just running out in public and messing with people to their Evangelion and five minute videos. Like there it's, it's like a jump, mm. like a, like a huge leap into the next level. And I could see why people were like blown away by it. Cause I, that's even more baffling to me. Cause in the, I watched the making of, uh, uh, documentary afterwards. And, the whole set they're in, like for the science, the for Matt's office, was somebody's living room. It was somebody's living room that took them weeks to build, and then they tore it down in two hours. Like, 
it it is it, it it's 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 like wild and like some of those props they have are just paper craft but they're shot so smartly and crafted so like every it, everything is just so smartly crafted and put together and aware of the budget that's in place here that I'm just like okay I I'm seeing things here uh, specific ano touches that I'm like okay he he knows how to work with his budget even though you know the people he's work with have a history of not being great with budgets but that that, that will come later <laughs> Yeah, I was watching uh, Criterion Channel has a series of interviews with Bill Hader that mm-hmm. they've had up on the front page uh, pretty recently, and I was watching like the main interview that they did with him, and he goes off on this tangent for a while about the first Evil Dead movie, and how he would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that, because you kind of get to watch, like, as the movie progresses, you get to watch them learn how to make a movie, essentially. In the beginning of the movie, they don't know what they're doing. They've got, like, good filmmaking instincts, but they really don't know what they're doing. And then by the end of the movie, everything is just, like, amped up to 11, and they know how to use the camera now, and they know how to, like, work the effects and stuff now. And I was thinking about that a lot, watching Return of Ultraman yesterday. It's just really by by the end of everything, it's like, wow, they, they really know how to make a movie and this is good. Mm-hmm. Like the only parody element is Anno in the Ultraman suit, in the Ultraman jacket. That's it. That's the only like little parody thing I could notice. That's it. Like if they really wanted to, they could have gotten a wetsuit and made an Ultraman suit if they really wanted to, but they didn't. So, I would love, since Rex invoked this, I would love a Criterion collection of all the Daikon film shorts. Or just films. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm like, I'm honestly really surprised that they've never touched anything Hideo has worked on ever since they seem to love doing Japanese film and they don't tend to shy away from doing genre stuff. A lot of that would fit in very well with their uh, Godzilla stuff mm-hmm. that they've done over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, didn't they also release a laser disc of Akira back in the 90s? They sure did. Actually, I I don't know what they're working on, but I know uh, Justin Savakis was in the Criterion closet. He posted a picture from it on uh, mm. Twitter a few weeks ago, and in the replies he mentioned getting to touch the Akira Laserdisc. <laughs> I was really jelly of. Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> that must go for a pretty penny. Mm. Of course, this was all leading up to Daikon 4 and the animated sequence that had yet to be created for the opening ceremony. Quote, if the Daikon 3 anime had been handcrafted, Takeda remembers, then Daikon 4's was an industrial production. End quote. Everything was bigger and more professional this time around. Which, given everything that happened since Daikon 3, the opening of General Products, working on Macross, founding Daikon Film, makes sense. Rather than inconveniences inconveniencing Okada's parents, this time the team rented their own studio in Morinomiya near Osaka Castle in order to meet fan expectations and to satisfy their own desire to one-up themselves. They needed more help, 
The original Daikon 3 trio of Ano, Yamaga, and Akai would no longer cut it, so they had to seek out other animators, which not only included friends like Maida and Sadamoto, but some of their former Artland colleagues like Itano and Toshiki Hirano and Kazutaka Miyate, Miyatake. When all was said and done, a dozen people contributed to the Daikon 4 opening animation. Unfortunately, working conditions had not improved since Daikon 3. In fact, they got worse. Packed like sardines in their studio apartment during the height of summer, without the benefit of air conditioning, the team worked grueling hours. Takeda compared the production to a sweatshop. Quote, They had to paint cells long into the hot nights, drowning in rivers of sweat. It was pretty much your nightmare production site. End quote. Like before, they worked until the morning of the convention, finishing at the 11th hour. And I think it's fair to say they reached their goal. Daikon 4, by every quantifiable metric, supersedes its predecessor, featuring the return of everyone's favorite radish girl, now an adult and wearing a bunny girl outfit. This short is a kaleidoscopic trip through nerd culture. The animation is sharper, the scope larger, the action is far more kinetic, they packed a multitude of references into each and every frame. And perhaps most memorably, it includes music, all unlicensed, from Kitaro, Bill Conti, and the Electric Light Orchestra, which gives the action an added oomph. It might feel a little redundant given our Daikon 3 takes, but we can't not talk about it. How do you all feel about the Daikon 4 opening? It is the Soul Blade for PS1 intro of... Uh anime opening ceremony intro videos mm-hmm. you gotta shine on man it's it's it is it is anime it is anime that that, that and i don't say that as like as a thing it, it is anime incarnate it is it is it is fandom incarnate it's it's gorgeous it's beautiful it's I, it really does sound like I'm overly hyping it up, but just for me, who who saw it at a very formative time, around the time I saw Gunbuster, um, like it, it's 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 it, it wouldn't be too far off to call it a little, a little magical in places, even though it's just an introductory uh, um, video for a convention. It's it's still it's iconic. Um, they with uh, I think this year's the 40th anniversary of Daikon four and three, so they uh, uh, Kyoto announced they're putting out some kits again, vinyl kits. They're not complete figures of the the Starship Troopers power suit that shows up in both shorts and the Bunny Girl. And I'm like, I'm I'm getting the Bunny Girl. I have no experience with bo- vinyl model kits, but I want the the Bunny Girl because she's iconic. She's cool. I saw a cosplayer of her at Otakon, and I, I'm 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 punching myself for not getting a photo because she had a sword too, and it was like dope. And I'm also super jealous of the people I know who got those OtaQuest shirts from another anniversary that have Daikon with the bunny girl on it, and they're like, ah, oh, Daikon rocks. As as a biased old head, Daikon. Four specifically rocks, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Daikon Four is such a fucking mood. Obviously, the use of Electric Light Orchestra's Twilight elevates the whole fucking thing. 
and it, it but it really nails this vibe if like you know what i mean you have to see it to know what mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. and you have to be old as shit too then you, you'll know what i mean <laughs> i feel like i'm driving at night in neo tokyo or some shit as like a kaleidoscopic neon light show fills my peripheral vision I get the same feeling whenever I'm watching the discotheque sizzle reel and every night buy to live and die in LA starts playing. I'm just vibing. The The energy in the room when this premiered must have been electric. And I think Daikon 4 looks great. And I also think it could stand shoulder to shoulder with any of the classic 80s OVAs. No doubt the larger team helped. Atano clearly animated those flying swords. They look very stylish and, and movement and motion, and the colors really pop. I don't know, what can you say? Daikon 4 is a visual tour de force, and something I do return to, because it's just such a, it's such a vibe. The Daikon 3 and 4 shorts were released on Betamax and Laserdisc in Japan in the late 80s. To get around the legal hurdles of releasing these shorts, remember, none of the characters, music, or even the Playboy Bunny costume were licensed. Uh, Gainax gave the Laserdisc out as a freebie with the purchase of a making of book. Unfortunately, there has not been a proper HD upscale or remaster of either of these shorts despite their historical importance. The rips that exist online are of an incredibly poor quality. Coop, I bet you would love to get your hands on the Laserdisc, which is going for like between a grand and 1500 online. Yeah, I've looked at that time or two and I'm like, uh, too rich for my blood. Cool, but just aggressively too rich for my blood. <laughs> the, the Betamax is also like a grand, maybe a few yeah. hundred shy of that. That doesn't. That does not surprise me at all. That 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 checks out. <laughs> Recently, a fan group called Kiniko Video, formerly Femboy Films, was in the process of restoring the Daikon Three short until Gainax reached out and asked them to refrain from releasing their efforts to the public. Which, if you just take a moment to think about it, is fucking wild. PMC, as a resident copyright expert here, um, I want you to weigh in. Because the temerity of Gynax, um, which, by the way, to be clear, Gynax is a shell of its former self. It's basically a holding company at this point. It does not presently employ any of the folks we're talking about in this episode. But, like, the boldness, PMC, of what Gynax is doing here. Like, the hop- copyright copyright is hypocritical to begin with, but the hypocrisy here is off the charts. So, the thing that I... Now, I'm going to I'm gonna try to clue you into why I think Gynax, the holding company that exists in 2023, did what they did, which is that the when it comes to copyright, the, the most important thing in copyright is not the text of the you know, statutes, the relevant statutes regarding, or even case law. What's the number one word in copyright? What do you think it is? If you're talking about copyright, what is the first thing you're thinking of? Years. Right. What's that, Coop? Right. Close. The most important thing in copyright is whether or not it actually gets enforced. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Uh, the, the thing about copyright, and, and this, is, like, this is why I think copyright is hypocritical, 
copyright is often sold to us with this sort of myth of the of the independent artist that if we didn't have copyright the that that artist wouldn't be able to you know protect their work and they wouldn't be able to go on but the way copyright is structured the way law is structured is that it primarily benefits the people who are able to afford lawyers teams of lawyers to go after people and so here uh, you know you flip that on its head we all know that the daikon shorts are historically important i'm sure lots of people know about them they're widely available on youtube a sort of copyright gray space uh, which kind of operates on fake copyright people say it operates on copyright it really operates on content id of course the thing that i'll point out is that i wonder if the holding company people think there is some liability like associated with these becoming more widely promulgated remember copyright copyright operates on a timetable that is much longer than anything else all right copyright lasts longer than like you know liability for murder patents mm -hmm. anything copyright is, you know can be life of the author plus know, some number of years it's very stupid it's astonishingly stupid it's almost like designed to generate lost media like is, is, is how i would describe copyright yeah, the, the states of these authors have to keep making money doing nothing Right, right. Yeah. Also, so, too... Go ahead, Rick. I want, yeah, I want to point out, Gainax isn't just a holding company. The companies involved with that, like, the own the holding company are Kadokawa, I want to say, and King Records, who are very notoriously bullish mm. about, like, protecting their stuff. So, and there's a strong possibility they might not even know what's in the actual shorts themselves they might just see oh hey we have these don't touch them mm -hmm. yeah I, and i think that's exactly right that's that's sort of the number two option it's one of those it, either they're they don't want it to be more widely noticed because they feel that there's liability associated with it, right like if you put it out now what is disney going to think about that you know mm -hmm. how do they feel about that they're, they're the owners of star wars now uh, you know, how does Paramount uh, or whoever is technically the parent company of Star Trek, um, you know, ideally in, in a sane world, we would say, ah, yeah, they appreciated this was a historical work that gave rise to a bunch of influential artists, but we don't, we definitely do not live in that world. And so whether nah. it's, you know, just sort of, you know, bull, bullheaded legal thuggery or concerns about liability, you know, I, that's likely what drives this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I remember, I think, if I'm correct on this, I remember Kiniko Video talking about this in a tweet, like, they may have had plans to do so, but, again, what plans? Like, the only thing I could think of, it's the anniversary of this year, so maybe, but who knows, really. Um, but also on that point, too, uh, that also came up with the Daikon 3 shorts, because uh, Kiniko Video also... Um, they put up Daikon 3 with a disclaimer at the beginning saying, hey, Gynax asked us not to put this up, uh, put up our restoration, but we're just going to put up the raw. Um, so we'll see if... And there's and then with with Daikon 4, there's kind of not a point of putting up the raw at the moment because there's it's it's in a lot of places. It would, it would be great if it looked a lot better, but it, it is what it is. Yeah, I hate the look of that AI upscale one. It just, ugh. yeah, it, it properly it really, print. It, it it takes a lot of, it kind of smudges up a lot of the details, and also you can tell it's one of the very first uses of AI upscaling for any of that too. Yeah. 
After the success of Daikon 4, the team wanted once and for all to transition out of the amateur space. These 20-somethings were all on the cusp of their professional careers. They just needed a little push. For Anno, that push came in the form of an expulsion. Busy with making self-financed films, his official bio on Kara's website reads, Anno stayed away from college and didn't bother to pay tuition. In effect, he had become an absentee student. And fed up, the Osaka University of Arts kicked him out. Ano, who presumably saw this coming, wasn't deterred. Rather, he turned this setback into an opportunity. After his parents refused to support him financially, Ano moved back to Tokyo to look for work in the animation industry. I had no choice but to find a job, Ano recalls. Quote, I left my apartment in Osaka with just a bag. End quote. Meanwhile, Hayao Miyazaki, 42 years old and not quite the legend he is today, was struggling to complete Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, his first original feature-length film. Simply put, he was in need of animators. At the time, remember, this is all pre-Studio Ghibli, he was at Topcraft, an animation studio founded in the early 70s by former Toei employees. As Ano tells it, Mahiro Maida, whom he linked up with in Tokyo, encouraged him to go for the job. They went to the interview together. Ano, who was a huge fan of Miyazaki's work, he grew up watching Future Boy Conan and saw Castle of Cagliostro, Cagliostro multiple times in theaters, was anxious. Nerves be damned, Ano walked into Miyazaki's office and showed him some storyboards. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for this meeting. Mm-hmm. I've heard multiple accounts of this meeting. As in like pop, pop culture osmosis or like in the pop cultural spheres that we all inhabit, most people tell the anecdote or know the anecdote. Anno read, a news, read ad in a newspaper and followed up on the ad and walked into Miyazaki's office, showed some storyboards. I'm pulling this account from his account, which is from a – it was on the Nausicaa G-Kids – Blu-ray. He was it's a radio interview with him and Toshio Suzuki, famous producer at Studio Ghibli. And this is where Ano is talking about his first interview with Miyazaki. And he mentions that Maida is the one who told him about it, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, also, in that that radio interview, they're all lusting over the mom in Ponyo. Uh, they they find her very uh. sexy, which. I don't disagree. I just found it very amusing. I, I love Ponyo, and I, I, lo- I love the mom in Ponyo so much. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to throw that out there, because the way this story was told to me, he read the newspaper ad, just walked in the office. I think it was a little bit more planned than that. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, Miyazaki was uncharacteristically impressed and brought Ano on to the project. Ano ended up living in the Top Craft studio for two and a half months for the two and a half months that he worked on Nausicaa. During this time, Ano and Miyazaki became close. Like with Itano, Miyazaki became a mentor figure and helped Ano, who was still early in his career, hone his craft. Pr- 
Primarily, Anno was tasked with animating one of the film's final and most impressive sequences, the God Warrior scene. We, we've all seen Nausicaa, right? P- even PMC has seen it. I, can, I, I can have seen Nausicaa. Fact. It's uh, a good film. It, it rules. <laughs> I've returned to it for this podcast like five times. Um, Nausicaa is one of the films I don't consider like Ghibli comfort food. Um, Ghibliotech, a really great podcast out there, refers to like Jukebox Ghibli, which is just spirited away. You know, the, the classic... 2000s, the 2010s, Ghibli aesthetic, Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited Away, you know, the whimsical comfort um, food that can be Studio Ghibli. Um, But going back to Nausicaa, I'm just really entranced by its world and all the world building going on. But this is a Nausicaa podcast, uh, so I'm not going to go on too long on Nausicaa, but I do want to hear your thoughts about the God Warrior scene, which of course Anno animated himself. It's so good. Like, I have not watched Nausicaa since probably late high school but when i think of nausicaa i think of this scene and if i remember correctly it also features very prominently in the trailer for the americanized version of nausicaa warriors of the wind <laughs> which i have seen more recently than high school i think i watched that, seems that like a, a couple of years ago yeah <laughs> how yeah. long is that that's like sub 60 minutes right they cut the shit out of that film yeah it's not very long at all i think it might be I don't remember the exact runtime, but it's around like an hour. It's very, very heavily cut. Like the performances in the dub aren't that bad, but it's not. It's only worth watching as like a historical curio. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's it's the lowest hanging fruit comment that I could trot out, but it's so Ava. I mean the the God Warrior, this. Uh, the, like this, the height of it, the industrial civilization, civilization before collapse, like the melting flesh, the bones. It's like when, um, what is it? Ava Unit Three goes berserk in the middle of Ava's run. I couldn't help but think of that scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it hmm. is something very haunting about it. It's funny because on this Blu-ray release, he is talking with Katayama, who is the director of The Big O. And I think both Ano and Katayama have similar visual sensibilities. They're both very good with scale. And this really comes out in the God Warrior scene and really any episode of The Big O that you watch. I've talked about this on numerous podcasts before. Um, There's this idea from romanticism of the sublime like you're looking at something that's like half horrifying and half life affirming like standing in front of a hurricane as it's hitting the shore like you can't help it um, you're scared out of your, your mind but also you can't help but just continue staring into the abyss I get some I get similar vibes from the God warrior it's there's something terrifying but incredibly pleasurable about watching its collapsing flesh I would love to see I haven't gotten to see Nausicaa in theaters yet I would love to see it purely for the scene alone like uh yep. getting to watch uh Shaneva in theaters last year it's just like you really get a sense for Ano's sense of scale when you're seeing it on a movie screen and not just watching it at home and god warrior scene in a movie theater i feel would slap so much Mm-hmm. I have to check the list. I don't know if Ghibli Fest is doing Nausicaa in the the second half of the year. I, I was the the advertisement for the upcoming um, theatrical releases was at the theater when I saw Shin Kamen Rider, but I didn't go through it too closely. 
if my daughter wasn't born in April, I would have gone out and saw the, the, the stage play, the Spirited Away stage play. I'm kind of mm-hmm. kicking myself that I didn't get around to it. I've been to so many of these uh, G uh, Kids showings. They're all great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They really are. I think they might have already done Nausicaa. Because I know... Because that was one I wanted to see real bad this year. And I think they might have done that earlier in the year already. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I know this month is Kiki's. So I'm going to go see that. Nice. That's my favorite one. The last G-Kids Ghibli Month showing I saw was... Again, this was also a pre-pandemic, was Princess Mononoke. And the crowd was having a good time. That was that was a fun flick. Um, as far as me and the God Warrior, I... Admittedly, I'm not the hugest Anaska fan. Um, I I do remember that being pretty haunting and cool, but it's even cooler and up my alley was the Tokusatsu short of the God Warrior that was mm. done a little while back, where the God Warrior descends upon moder- modern Tokyo and it's haunting and scary as hell. I think it was done as uh, part of one of the Animator Expo. I'm not sure on that, but I remember it was like within the last 10 years it was if you want to see something haunting check that out i'm looking that up after this i've never seen that it is dope i think it's called like the god warrior descends or something like that it is i i wouldn't be surprised if there's i'll need to i'll need to take a look at that before watching shin ultraman when i'm able to because i i wouldn't be surprised if there's some things taken right out of that the shin ultraman blu-ray that's july right in the states yes i need to pre-order that Hmm. now that i think of it uh uh shin gojira gojira shin godzilla takes a lot from the god warrior stuff too now i'm thinking about when godzilla's mouth opens and the beam goes off everywhere Oh, that movie rocks. <laughs> Go ahead, Stephen. <laughs> I love Shin. That's so my wheelhouse. I like Shin Kamen Rider. I don't have a background in it, that the genre or uh, Kamen Rider in general. Um, I liked it. I, I was in love with it. Shin Godzilla hits all like the Stephen Hero talking points. Oh, yeah. Like, adore that film. Oh, yeah. Nausicaa hit theaters on March 11th, 1984. Anno attended the closing party, and he has this great anecdote that I think perfectly sums up his relationship with Miyazaki. Quote, He had quite a few drinks by the end. This is uh, Anno, by the way, talking about Miyazaki. He had quite a few drinks by the end, and a young female animator turned on him, asking if it's really all right to have the humans perish. And he answered, It's okay to have the humans perish. As long as some creature stays alive on this planet, there's no problem if humans no longer exist. End quote. Oh, and that's so. And then Anno says, I thought he was great when I heard him shout that. <laughs> that makes so much sense. That mm-hmm. is very uh, both of them thing. In fact, Anno considers the final volume of Nausicaa, the final volume of the manga, to be Miyazaki's greatest work. The manga, which spans spans seven volumes, ran for over a decade, concluding in 1994. The film is only adapts the first two volumes, and it. I so I started reading the manga. I'm like three volumes in. It is very good. It is much more complex than the film. It's not surprising. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a like so many extra 
added layers of geopolitical backstabbing and world building that is very juicy. The primary mm-hmm. story is very similar, but it's good. I, mm-hmm. I got it when I was like in my early 20s when I was still living at my parents. I remember I got it as a Christmas present. It's been sitting on my shelf for literally probably 11 or 12 years. I'm finally opening it now. Hell yeah. I, I've i been meaning to, as somebody who's not too crazy about the movie, um, I, I want to check that out because I feel like I'd be getting the full meal with also some time to digest it. Because occasionally with me and Ghibli movies, sometimes the pacing kind of puts me to sleep a little bit. Um, that's just how those movies are. I'm not making a qualitative statement about them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to to check that out at some point. It can't be overstated how foundational Miyazaki's mentorship was to this still young and still impressionable Anno. The two developed a strong professional and personal bond. For one, there's an obvious Ghibli influence in early Gainax works, especially Royal Space Force and Nadia. But perhaps even more notable is the fact that the two remain close to this day. Miyazaki cast Anno as the male lead in The Wind Rises, which, back in the early 2010s, was being promoted as Miyazaki's final film. Predictably, he has since gone back on that. The two have a comfortable and intimate relationship, which for the typically stoic and severe Miyazaki says a lot. They openly rib on each other in interviews. In the commentary for Nausicaa, Anno playfully calls Miyazaki an old geezer and calls out some of his directorial choices. That sort of good-natured criticism only happens between close friends. And again, I'm just going to vouch for it again. The G-Kids Blu-ray release is something special. All their releases are really good. There's a lot of great supplemental material on the disc. Uh, The Katayama Anno commentary is lively and fun. Uh, Whenever Tato's on screen, uh, Anno, without missing a beat, says, Tato's cute, Uh, and they both agree. It's it's, uh, definitely worth your time. So mid-80s at this point, Anno was literally living at Topcraft. So it's not surprising that he stayed on to work on their next project. Doubly so, since it was Do You Remember Love, the first Macross feature film, which allowed him to reunite with many of his former colleagues. During this production, Anno met Soichi Matsuo, another animator. The two would go on to found Studio Gravitron. Coop, I know you have some knowledge about this. Yes, because when I saw Gravitron... Wait a second, that's the name of that city in Project Deco. Let me look into this a bit. So, um, Gravitron, around that whole group, that that Mr. Uh, uh, Katsuhiko Nishijima I mentioned earlier, the dire- uh, who was the director of Project Deco and the founder of Studio Fantasia, he was bouncing in and around with that bunch. Um, there's a really good post I found on Tumblr talking about um, a little musing a little bit about Studio Gravitron that I recommend. I don't know exactly on the sources on that. I looked through the reader, the the author's other works, and it seems to check out. They seem to know what they're talking about. So, um, but uh, yeah, so there was a strong relationship there. Ano and Nishijima also are pretty strong because, mind you, a lot of the names you just mentioned, uh, whether it was. Um, Shoichi Masuo, excuse me, Shoichi Masuo, or um, uh, uh, a couple other folks there uh, did work together on some stuff. Like, for instance, Ano Nishijima worked on a, a little commercial for a little game called Valis 
around the time Hanamese came out, and that was produced by Studio Fantasia. Um, and that came out in August of 87, according to the trailer. So not long after uh, Wings of uh, Hanamese did they work on that. So yeah, it's there's, there's, there's a lot of... The more I look into this era of creators... Um, they, they they all knew each other and they all worked on something. It was a very tight-knit group because these guys, they were working on, on Aiko, they were working on Urusei Yatsura, they were working on Macross, and then they'd go work on Gunbuster, um, uh, Patliber, like all the big mecha stuff you know and love, like the most influential stuff. They all worked on it together in some capacity, which is just incre- like incredibly wild to me just how it makes the world all that much smaller. <laughs> According to Anno's biography on Kara's website, quote, Anno would live at the offices of Studio Gravitron and only work on projects when he was broke or when something caught his fancy. In this way, Anno fell victim to the seduction of an idle, decadent lifestyle. A sidebar here, I love when biographies on professional corporate websites uh, start moralizing things and trying to give you moral lessons. It's very funny. Uh, Now it ends here with, quote, back then, Ano used to tool around Tokyo on a moped that was given to him by Miyazaki. End quote. So this is how he spent his mid-20s. Chilling. I mean, at this point, Ano deserves a rest, so I'm glad he's a Mm -hmm. little bit more choosy with the projects. Yeah. He did a lot of stuff. Like, he'd hear the Back to back to back. <laughs> and he was busy in a freelance capacity throughout the decade, as we'll mm-hmm. talk about it in our next episode, too. Like, for example, I had no idea he worked in Grave of the Fireflies right before Gunbuster. Oh, boy. Yeah. So another sidebar real quick. We were talking about the Studio Ghibli Fest. I really wish... Uh, I know why uh, Takahata films don't get featured much, because no one is going to see My Neighbor the Yamadas in theaters and spending 20 bucks for that. But I really wish there were more Takahata films. Mm. But while Ano was cruising the streets of Tokyo, his friends back in Osaka were by no means idle. Around this time, 83 to 84 to 85, General Products was continuing to do well. They were expanding to sell licensed products, garage kit makers, and other models. Yamaga credits a lot of the store's success to the fact that it targeted a hardcore demographic. Quote, At the time, toy stores didn't really carry things like spaceships and stuff from anime, sci-fi films, or whatnot. There were some cheap things for kids, but absolutely nothing for hardcore fans. What we did was build them ourselves from the prototypes on up and sell them. End quote. At the same time, Daikon Films continued to... Well, make films. Contrary to popular belief, they didn't close up shop after Daikon 4. They kept making movies and showing them at special screenings across the country. This is where Shinji Higuchi, our final creative to introduce this episode, enters our story. I'm going to butcher the name here, butcher the title of this film. Yamata no Orochi no Kayakushi, which roughly translates to Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon, was intended to be their last independent film, and they wanted to go out with a bang. Directed by Akai, Orochi was Daikon Films' take on the kaiju genre. As the story goes, Shinji Higuchi, who was in his late teens, quote, just sort of dropped in 
during the production of Orochi and would end up living at the studio for over a year, becoming an essential member of our special effects team. End quote. This just goes to show sometimes it's worth it just to show up somewhere and pretend like you belong. Like if you play your cards right, it could become your career. Higuchi, especially to any kaiju fan, needs no introduction. As we'll talk about, he worked on Royal Space Force and Gus Gunbuster, not to mention future Gainax shows. He became very close with Anno. The two collaborated and co- continued to collaborate on many films, including Shin Godzilla and Shin Ultraman. And I would be remiss not to mention that he oversaw the special effects for the 90s Gamera trilogy, which I hear rules. Um, I, I was very tempted to pick up the Blu-ray set. Uh, it's in my mm-hmm. Amazon. Uh, it's on my Amazon wish list right now. Yeah, I was going to say Arrow's set of that is really good. They also... So Arrow has a streaming service. Oh. it Yeah, I've subscribed to it on and off like quite a bit over... I think they launched it like three years ago. Um, they're on there and some of the bonus features, not all of them, but some of the bonus features are on there. Uh, the service itself is like pretty hit or miss hence why i subscribe to it on and off but they've got some like really like interesting things on there sometimes and all of those movies are on there mm-hmm. Ooh, cool the thing the, bo- the thing what's tempting I- me though to get the physical release is it looks aesthetically like my criterion godzilla collection and i gotta have them both <laughs> on the shelf mm-hmm. yeah no for sure like arrow's box set like i like arrow a lot i don't buy as many of their discs as I would like is their the stuff that they license I guess is pretty hit or miss for me but I have their uh Tsukamoto box set with the Tetsuo of the Iron Man movies sitting on my shelf over there and they, they do good work uh you're just you're minding me I need to pick up Sailor Suit and Machine Gun eventually because that movie is dope <laughs> yeah they did do that I want to pick that up at some point and they also did I think they're still in print. They did the Stray Cat Rock movies, mm. which are a lot of fun. Some very good, like, 70s cheese. And uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion, which are just kind of, like, slightly better than average women in prison films by Nikatsu, I want to mm. say, did those. Stray Cat Rock, I can definitely recommend. They're really fun and campy. Hell yeah. Any strong Higuchi opinions before we move on? I didn't realize until recently how many like how instrumental Higuchi was to so many Gainax works uh and I'm really interested in checking out his filmography more because I've Shin Godzilla rules and I think I'm really in tune with Higuchi's sensibilities that's why I'm very excited to check out Shin Ultraman which unfortunately I wasn't able to see in theaters when it came out mm-hmm yeah, I was in the same boat on that. I have the production pamphlet book. I picked that up at Oticon that goes into the nitty-gritty on it with some really cool insights. Um, but I, I've noticed while watching Shinji, uh, watching any work that's Ano and Shinji Higuchi together and also seeing some production stories here and there that Ano is kind of like the ideas guy while Higuchi deals with people. Uh, and uh, bringing the production together because I noticed I've heard a common complaint about Shin Kamen Rider it's oh maybe criticism rather than complaint is it's final fight feels a little rough 
Um, and that's also notoriously the fight scene that while they were filming, I think this was during in the it was shown in the recent NHK documentary that Ano and the action director got into a big fight, and Ano had to bring the director back on set and uh, and apologize and get things back and going because he's he he may not be and I get this as a creative at times he may not be the best at communicating with folks and having Shinji Higuchi there with him kind of takes care of that because. Higuchi is very used to, uh, not to say that animation isn't complicated, but there's so many dangerous moving pieces when you're making tokusatsu flicks that, you know, Shinji Higuchi is, you got, you kind of got to be somebody who can talk with people while you're, uh, correlating explosions and dangerous stuff like this. to finally the creation of Gynex. Three hours into this podcast and Gynex hasn't been created yet, so we're going to rectify that right now. <laughs> I want to preface this last section with an admission up front, though. Obviously, we're about to talk about the creation of Gynax and the production of Royal Space Force, their first feature film. The history of Royal Space Force is enough to fill an entire episode. Considering how long this episode has gone, and the fact that I'd like to return to the subject in the future, I'm going to briefly, though not too briefly, go through the bullet points in the hope that someday we'll do an extensive deep dive into the subject. So I was, I was ta- faced with the dilemma of either I do the history or I like, don't. Like, there's no half-assing this. So I decided mm-hmm. I'm going to hold off because there's, a, there's definitely an episode's worth of material here. And I think Royal Space Force warrants that kind of examination. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it upon rewatching it. Um, because the film faded in memory because of the scene. But then when I watched it again for like the first time in 15 years, it's like, you know what? I'm not going to bat for the scene. And we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the film rules. And there's a way you could kind of contextualize the scene within the film. So if it feels like I'm glossing over any important points, that's why. But anyway, let's get back to it. By the mid-80s, General Products was financially in a good spot. To capitalize on this success, the General Products crew decided to found a new event called Wonder Festival. A flea market for garage kits, as Takeda puts it, Wonder Festival provided enthusiasts a space to show off and sell their custom models. Or their custom whatever, really, whatever they're building. They rented out half a floor of the Tokyo Trade Center in Hamamatsu and managed to generate a lot of hype for the event. So much so that not only was Wonderful Wonder Festival a success, but Wonder Festival continues, basically uninterrupted, sans COVID, to this day. After General Products folded in the 90s, toy, the toy company Kyoto took over as the main sponsor for the event. Now, amid preparations for Wonder Festival, both Okada and Yamaga began bouncing around ideas for an OVA. What began as idle brainstorming sessions eventually morphed into something more tangible. This seems like the natural end point, too. Or I guess the, really the natural start point for their professional career is they made Daikon 3, Daikon 4, amateur works. Why don't we make our own professional caliber animated product or animated film or animated OVA? At this time, they thought it was going to be an OVA. 
And OVAs, by the way, the market was fucking booming. They were all the rage. Mid-80s we're talking about. And that bubble wouldn't burst until like the early 90s. Now, in order to get the project off the ground, startup capital was supplied by general products to the tune of 2 million yen, about $8,500 in 1984 dollars. Okada brought on Hiroaki Inoue, whom whom he knew from his sci-fi group days and whom we referenced earlier, to produce. But to continue, they needed investors in cash. They needed more of it. Through general products, they had a contact at Bandai named Shiguru Watanabe. They used him to get a meeting with Makoto Yamashina, Bandai's president, to whom they made their pitch. Somehow... Takeda credits their luck to Yamashina's desire to advance Bandai's anime film production. These upstarts, who barely had their foot in the door, managed to secure a budget of 800 million yen, which was roughly equivalent to $3.5 million. Now, suddenly, what began as a modest OVA project ballooned into a feature film. I should mention, Takeda's account on this subject differs slightly from Yamaga's. According to an interview Yamaga gave in 2010 with ANN, they had approached Bandai earlier about doing a Gundam OVA. As Sean explains, quote, While Bandai was interested in working with Daikon Film, they weren't interested in a Gundam OVA yet, and instead proposed that they tackle a theatrical film project instead. End quote. I'm sure the reality was a synthesis of Takeda and Yamaga's accounts. The two don't necessarily cancel each other out. Furthermore, Yamaga would end up writing the scripts for War in the Pocket, the first Gundam OVA in 1989, which lends a certain credence to his claim. Thus, Gainax was born, because in order to make a film, you need a studio to make the film. Interestingly, and apparently this isn't the norm with a lot of Japanese companies, its name features no foreign words. Gaina, in the Yonago dialect, means big. They added the X at the end to, I quote, make it more like the name of an anime robot. (laughs) Big robot, basically. Or I guess robot with big vibes. Once they agreed on the name, they officially incorporated general products under their corporate umbrella, severing it from Okada's family business. There has been the misconception that Gainax began as a subsidiary of Bandai, but I'm going to emphatically state that is not true. Bandai just footed the bill for production. The studio was registered by general products. Okada was the president of Gainax, and Takeda was president of General Products. It's also worth pointing out that Daikon Film was still around when Gainax was founded, which means it did not become Gainax. That's a very important distinction to make. As Sean points out, quote, Daikon Film continued to exist alongside Gainax as it was finishing up production on Yamata no Orochi, end quote. Now, this divide was partly dictated by logistics. Gainax was operating in Tokyo, while General Products and Daikon Film were in Osaka. It's difficult from a scholarship perspective to point to an exact end date of Daikon Film. Indisputably, Orochi was their last big project in 1985. However, 
There was a fourth Notenki short called Role Playing Notenki in Seoul, Seoul being the South Korean capital, and that came out in 1988. I do not know who the fuck made this. I don't know whether it was credited to Gainax or Daikon Film. Um, Rex, can you point to anything here? I have no idea. I honestly, until uh, we started prepping for the episode, didn't realize that there was a fourth short. Um, so I, I would like to know more, I guess, about the context too of like how they released it. What was it for? Like, was this a thing that they just showed at conventions, or did it get like where I, I want to mm. watch it? That that title, like, there's a lot of things going on with it. Like, what is this even about? But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with it at all. I want to like, know more. The implication that they're filming this in Seoul also makes me go, oh, this has got to be some gorilla ass filming shit, and I want to see it badly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the third short was called, and I'm. I'm paraphrasing here because i don't have the exact title in front of me but role playing no tenki in america i know that the crew i don't know if takeda was with them they went to america to nasa for research for royal space force if they brought to takeda along that makes sense because i guess they filmed on location in florida of all all places so um that that one's a little longer that one is more more well documented that came out in 1984 before orochi uh, this last one, though, is a complete mystery. I think I found a runtime of, like, eight minutes. Like, maybe it was sold... I'm sure it was sold in general products. Mm-hmm. But whatever the case, Daikon Film was no longer around by the end of the decade, though they do have a Twitter page. They do have a twi- Twitter account. I don't know who is running that. Uh, but it seems official. Because I've seen, like, mentions on... Uh, with the... Uh... Because I know not long ago on Amazon Prime Japan, they put up the Return of Ultraman uh, short. And I I believe like it's attached to a Daikon film. So maybe maybe whatever's left or maybe it's a shell company situation like with Gynax these days. But this is just me shooting for the hip. I don't know for sure. Mm. But what I can definitively state is that the project that Bondi funded became a film called Royal Space Force. Uh, the wings of... I always butcher the pronunciation, Coop. Remind me how it's pronounced? Hanamis. Hanamis. The problem is I always read the name in my butcher pronunciation. I'm not hanging out with enough otaku, if you will, to actually correct my <laughs> pronunciation on it. I, I'll tell you, the only way I know how to say that is... Because uh, it's burned my brain because it was a religious experience. When I watched Gunbuster for the first time, at the beginning of those Bandai visuals, it has the Hanamis Hanamisu, because that was the name of the label that they were bringing that and Pat Labor stuff on, uh, over. So that's the only way I know how to say that. <laughs> Hold, save those thoughts because we're going to talk all about that label next episode. Hell yeah. Now, Coop, why don't you give us a brief summary of the film? Yeah, of course. Because I, I did see this for the first time not too long ago. So, in an Earth like our own, but way more diesel punky. Uh, Shirozugu is a member of the Royal Space Force, which, like in our world right now, is a big joke to the government. It's the biggest joke they could ever be. It's the butt of every joke, and it's just a bunch of layabouts doing nothing and just training and whatever. Uh, But this all changes 
when Shiro's uh, uh, has an encounter with a young woman that brings back his lifelong passion to maybe fly, but that also coincides with uh, the the commander of the space force being like, you know, let's let's put a man up in orbit. And so it comes together, this ragtag team of pilots and scientists and mechanics come together to put Shiro up in orbit. Uh, uh, hopefully, if uh, boiling political tensions do not stop them first. Koop, I have to ask, did you watch the dub? No, I did not, actually. I, uh, I watched it with the subtitles. <laughs> Somewhere Brian Cranston's crying. I know he's mad. He's mad that I didn't. Uh, I didn't keep my loyalty to him from the Macross Plus days. <laughs> he's mad that I didn't go all the way. <laughs> uh, that's for PMC. <laughs> Production shifted from Osaka to Tokyo, where Okada and Yamaga set up Gainax's first studio. Interestingly, Gainax was originally planned to be a temporary corporate entity. Mm. Once the project with Bondi was finished, so would Gainax. At least that was the plan. Production began in 1984 and continued up until the film's release in 1987. The film was beset with production issues. That's a topic for another podcast, but I do want to review some of the folks who worked on the film, literally... The gang's all here. Hiroyuki Yamaga, director, screenwriter. Toshio Okada, planner. Hideaki Anno, animation director, mechanical designer. Takami Akai, assistant director, color designer. Yoshiyuki Sadamoto, animation direction, character designer. Mihiro Maida, key animator. And Shinji Higuchi, assistant director. I w- a lot of other folks worked on this film, too. We can't get into it now, but I would be remiss not to mention that <coughs> Ryo- Ryoichi Sakamoto of YMO fame composed the soundtrack for Royal Space Force. It is such an eclectic mix of really avant-garde music. Unfortunately, according to him, Sakamoto did not look back fondly at the experience, stating, quote, I wasn't particularly pleased with the music for an anime film I worked on 35 years ago. End quote. Doesn't even name the film, which you could read. It makes all sorts of readings into that. Mm-hmm. Tragically, Sakamoto died of cancer in March of this year. Uh, poor run out for one of the greats. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, do we have any like hot Royal Space Force takes? Like, I'll, I guess I'll start here because I watched Royal Space Force back when I was in college. Really liked it at the time. A bit turned off about there's a right, so there's a scene of sexual yeah. assault um, mm-hmm. midway through the film. Um, that's not great. The scene after I think is a little worse based on how the female character is written. We don't really have time to go into it now, but in my memory, Royal Space Force only diminished because I would only think about the scene, and everyone always mm-hmm. talks about it in very hushed terms, like the scene. Upon revisiting it, um, the scenes there, the scene is not great. The rest of the film, though, rules. I really like Royal Space Force. Um, it's just like world-building incarnate. It, it's played like a documentary. The historical forces that exist and are influencing and impacting the character's existence and relations and actions is all super fascinating. But you have this ragtag group of people who just want to go into space. 
Um, I don't like when people, as criticism, say, oh, yeah, see, see this cast of characters? They're the team of animators who made this, and you're supposed to read into the film. Through, you're supposed to read the film through that lens. I usually think that's a very reductive case. Here, though, I think it, it's applicable. I think you can mm-hmm. definitely see the Gynax folks. Um, you could draw a comparison between them and this group of astronauts who just want to make it into space. And the world building and the visual fidelity of all this fake ass shit like slaps, the mechanical designs rule. The film is really outside that scene and outside some like light character work. This, this film is really smartly written. We'll talk mm-hmm. about this in another podcast. Yamaga likes to crap on himself, and Blue Blazes likes to crap on Yamaga for having like no creative ambition. In the 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 few things he's written, Gunbuster, War in the Pocket, and Royal Space Force all have a certain like very grounded, realistic tone mm-hmm. that I really appeals to me as an anime fan. Um, so I, I get the joke, and he seems to be more of a businessman and a producer. But I really, I'm really hoping for Gunbuster Three if he ever gets around to it, like he hinted at a few years ago. Yeah, my. I was gonna say my first time watching Royal Space Force. I was probably around the same age as you. I want to say it was like 19 or 20. And there was a summer when, cause a lot of my friends had gone off to school and I had stayed here. Um, there was one summer where one of my friends is, uh, I think his mom and dad both worked for NASA. I don't remember, but they had like a really big house that we hung out at a lot. And a lot of my friends had just turned 21 that summer. So we oh. were, drinking a ton and during the day we'd go thrifting and go to half price books and buy up all the anime tapes and then at night we would get drunk and either watch anime tapes or go to shows and we got in one of our like bulk buys of tapes we got royal space force and that night we didn't wind up watching it because we had gone to a show and then we all went back to my friend's house and crashed and I woke up very hungover the next day and they had some of my friends had already started watching tapes and they were about like like five minutes in Royal Space Force and I was like oh good I wanted to watch this let's do it so we had a really good time with it it was the subtitled version I've never actually watched the dub um but then we got to the scene, and it was just like everybody's mood just soured, and like half of us that were watching it, like a lot of people wound up like walking out like during the scene. It was like, oh, that that sucked. But other than that, like you said, it's an incredible movie. That that scene reminds me because there's another thing that I'm very intimately familiar with that um, has a similar... I think a Macross Dynamite 7 because that OVA is really fun. There's also a horrible sexual assault scene in it as well for... Like, I... I, I boy, that that scene definitely need, needed way more care if they were ever going to approach that. They could have just cut it out, I feel. Um, um, but as for the movie on the whole... I liked it quite a bit. Um, I watched it not too long ago. Not too long ago, a friend kindly was like, hey, I'll sell you my old uh, uh, Blu-ray for a good price. And that's how I watched it. It was excellent. Um, 
a lot of the vibes of it actually reminded me of Ivan Reitman's movies with Bill Murray quite a lot. Like there's a bit of stripes and um, mm. a little bit of Ghostbusters in there. Like there's some of the same vibes of like this, like it, it's it's not just the ragtag part, but it's like these bunch of like ragtag losers with, uh, with, with not the greatest agendas behind them. Like, um, that's I, I felt that especially in the moments where they were all coming together near the end and they're like, hey, we actually did it. We got a dude up there, even though we're all about to be shot by this opposing military showing up. Um, like, I got a lot of those vibes. Also, um, Sakamoto's soundtrack rips. Um, I, I I thought to, I know Rex will appreciate this. Um, the the ending and opening. Uh, tracks reminded me so much of the music that was accompanying like on Windows 95 and like it has Windows 95 Windows 98 vibes and I say that lovingly like it is it is it is peak MIDI aesthetic that I just want to open up an old uh, Pentium 2 and turn on the MIDI sound table and listen to that put out those songs yes yeah I remember like that first time we were watching it like the music was just kind of we were all very hypnotized by it because a lot of like my friends that I like was hanging out then and still do hang out with uh, very into retro computing so mm-hmm. we were just like e- in like vaporwave and stuff we were just like eating the shit up like big time until the scene happens of course like yeah yeah and that's I, I feel like the scene as we've already talked about is the big asterisk I think it's a good movie but really I that's really I, I would almost say if you're aware of it if you want to see it and you're really sensitive to that stuff I'd recommend just skipping past it or if you just don't want to see the flick I get that too do whatever works best for you if you search out Real Space Force yes, there's a 4K out now I, I wish they just glad just delete, not delete the scene entirely because for preservation and like scholarship purposes, mm-hmm. like of course keep that in. But I wish there was like a special feature that just takes the scene out so you could view it without it. Because Royal Space Force makes such great background noise, like throwing on a Pat Labor film, mm-hmm. it's, it's it sets a vibe. Mm-hmm. Now the film was a critical darling when it was finally released in March 1987. Fans and critics alike, including Miyazaki, praised its gorgeous animation and its honesty and optimistic spirit sans the scene but allegedly the film did poorly at the box office recouping about half its budget to be fair i've read a lot of conflicting accounts about how successful or not successful royal space force actually was whether it tanked or broke even but suffice it to say it didn't bring in earth-shattering revenue uh Offhand, Okada mentioned in that mid nineteen in that interview he gave mid nineties that they didn't really make their money back on Royal Space Force until like the early nineties, like five or six years later. Mm-hmm. I I could see this being the kind of movie that really gets its money back on home video more than anything else. Yeah, movies don't animated flicks to, like like this don't exist anymore. They haven't existed no. since the eighties. That's why like, it's such a product of its time and all the best ways possible if you enjoy stuff like this. Like, I think the closest we get to stuff like this, and I'm speaking more just from the the zany creative uh, part of it, because I know you have your Shinkais and your Hosodas, but I, I'm thinking a lot of... I want rewatch Promare 
as mm. part of preparation for all this. And I, I'm, I'm thinking there's like that spirit and energy. And again, they don't make many because it's it, like home video. You can't really put your bets on recouping everything with home video anymore. Unfortunately, I wish that was the case, but it's like, and eh, maybe merch, but uh, merch costs a lot of money to do too. <laughs> yeah. But even so, Gynax was by no means dead. You could say they were aiming for the top. I think we just recorded, my friends, the second longest giant robot FM episode, period. As PMC is going, as PMC is barely holding on, sleep deprived as he is from SGDQ. He's still here, folks. I am still alive. I'm, I'm basically the producer for this episode. I'm, I'm, I'm like Yamaga. all right hit us with some plugs everyone of course the group will be back um for you next week for us recording two weeks from now um when we record the follow-up episode to this where we'll be diving deep into the history of gunbuster there isn't quite as much information to go through and of course we're spacing out that information we're going to have a separate gunbuster video game episode and a separate gunbuster i guess written I guess Gunbuster Pros episode, not including any manga series that exist out there. Um, so we'll have like a more relaxed discussion. I won't be have to like to drive the machine forward quite so much as I did in this episode. So that's all to say. I'm very much looking forward to it. Coop, hit us with some plugs. I know you're very busy. You got many irons and many fires. Yes, I'm, I'm busy on stuff. The best way to see what I'm up to is to check out uh, me on Twitter at Rider Strike. But if that goes into flames anytime soon, which who knows it could, knowing how Twitter's going, uh, you can see all I do at riderstrike.card.co. I also, because I mentioned that little Macross show a time or two, with my good friend Dylan Gregory at the Dilla on Twitter, we did this little show called Dude, You Remember Macross, where we've covered pretty much all of Macross. We're in the middle of Delta right now, and we'll get back to it. Because, you know, they just announced this new Macross show, and Sunrise is doing it for some reason, and I'm very excited to see what happens. It's, it's, boy, this is a wild time to be a Macross fan, or fan of just robot stuff in general. Rex, come at me with your tiny Rex arms and give me Real quick, I wanted to add, because Coop, it must be fun to host a Macross podcast and, like, get that news and then text your co-host, Dylan, the good news. PMC and I just text each other bad news like they just delayed front michigan discotech just delayed gunbuster again just delays i think most of our texts are like oh are we gonna get back to this ah, soon we're both busy oh okay cool we'll get to it so yeah more more macross stuff and we'll do it so rex claw at me so- dude yeah, you can find me on Twitter at R-N-A-B-O-U-R-S-I-I-I. Um, I run beyondelectricsheep.com, where uh, it's mostly turned into an Evangelion repository at this point. I have a shitload of stuff I'm going to be dropping this summer, some of which, hopefully, by the time you're listening, will be out, and most of it is uh evangelion related i've been slowly teasing it on twitter but i mean i might as well announce it now um i'm going back through because i needed to update my uh ava video games articles really badly but they were a pain because of the way i laid them out so i'm redoing the whole everything uh individual articles per game and the first of those should be 
probably out by the time this episode drops because I'm translating the songs from the games and like putting it's just a, gonna be an overwhelming mm. amount of shit going on at my website real soon um I also uh Houston peeps I will be at uh Bacon on July 1st and 2nd I'm not paneling I'm playing a show so that should be a lot of fun and I, if you missed my anime lockdown panel, uh, it's still early in uh, talks. But if you missed my anime lockdown panel and you're in the Houston area, uh, maybe doing a very extended version of that in person. Oh, yeah. So, Tell me about Mr. Happy. I need to know about I, Mr. Happy. I am hoping that I will be able to show people Mr. Happy in full in person. Hell yeah. At this thing. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I got approached for a thing. So it'll be good. PMC, no, did you course. like how I did the promotions, the episode you weren't on? Yes. He has no, he I has no memory. <laughs> I've totally, I was, I was so, I don't remember anything that happened the past week. He's the SGDQ. No he's the uh, true crime NYC motorcycle that's not being operated by a human. She's just that's right. coasting through mm-hmm. empty mm-hmm. streets, just, just ghosting straight through. Folks, we are now. You know, this is the second week of our summer of Gunbuster coverage. Of course, last week we had the discussion on Blue Blazes. Next week we'll get a part two to follow up on this to really hone in on. Gunbuster in the destruction of Australia, thank God. <laughs> Beyond that, of course, we will start covering the 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 uh, the OVA episode by episode, and then you know additional coverage beyond that. So please look forward to that. If you enjoy what we're doing, you know, rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. That is very much appreciated. Or independent podcast, so always appreciate the recommendations on platforms and the word of mouth recommendations as well. If you want to support us directly, we have a Patreon, patreoncom FM where we are doing a number of fun things right now, presumably we are still covering the witch from Mercury on a week to week basis. I did watch the episode this morning before we recorded this. I'm still emotionally processing that Steven have fun with that after this recording. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> so enjoy that. Uh, it, it, that is available to $5 and above patrons. If you're curious what our radio free Mercury coverage looks like, the first 13 episodes of that are available on the main feed. So check that out. If you like it, consider subscribing. We are also working on simulator stuff. I believe this is now the first recording. Actually, no, wait, Steven covered it, but we will be doing an assault suit Falcon episode and then a gun hazard episode instead of gun hazard in the front mission Two, since the remake got delayed. If you like the simulator stuff, a few of those episodes are already available. For example, Steven referred to our Zardion episode, which is available on the main feed. There's Armored Core episodes in the main feed. The first two Front Mission episodes are also on the main feed. If you really like those, want to support those, you can consider going to the appropriate Patreon tier on our Patreon. Uh, and, you know, check that out. Of course, there is now in four patrons right now. You could check out the Frame Grind episode if you are a, a simulator patron. And soon that'll be joined by Valken and Gun Hazard. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for our graphic design, credit to Shkin for our very, very cool art, and credit to Fretzel, hashtag Banfretzel, for the music that we use. 
Coop, you got a pun for us to close this sucker out? Well, I think next time let's we we I I think I think before we start talking about aiming for the top, I think we might have to aim for the ace a little bit, maybe perhaps. <laughs> nice. That sounds like a racket to me, Coop. <laughs> ha ha.